Thank you for listening to the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Jeremy Donovan here. Before we start with this week's episode of Keeping a Strong Style, I just want to uh, briefly address what's going on in our country right now. Uh, as a black man, this has been one of the most frustrating, emotional, and exhausting weeks that I've ever experienced. Um, I've had a hard time collecting my thoughts and clearly articulating my feelings on on everything that's going on right now and uh, seeing and hearing uh, the unjust murders of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd um, has just been absolutely heartbreaking. And, um, you know, in, in response to the, the murder of George Floyd, um, we're seeing riots and uh, protests all across the country. Um, several riots right here in uh, our home city of Tampa, Florida. Um, it's all uh, just pretty surreal and pretty crazy to see all is happening right now. Um, you know, we, we should not have to feel like the only way for our voices to be heard is to destroy cities and um, and riot and destroy. But uh, unfortunately, that's the uh, reality of the situation. Innocent black people need to stop being murdered. Um, if you're protesting, um, please be careful and uh, make it home safe. And if you're tweeting the hashtag uh, Black Lives Matter, I hope that your words and your actions uh, back up that tweet. So in the days to come, uh, I will be lamenting and praying for the families and friends of uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd and praying for peace and justice for this country. Uh, this is all that I have to say right now on situation. So uh, thanks again for your support of Social Suplex and keeping it strong style. Uh, enjoy today's show. The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hello. This is Zack Sabre Jr., New Japan Cup winner 2018. And you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style with my mates. Enjoy. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Rocky. We were just about to go to intermission. Uh... Katsuyori Shibata's music just hit. The crowd on their feet. What an enormous surprise. Is he going to come out? Yes! There he is! Katsuyori Shibata! For the first time in the New Japan Pro Wrestling Ring! 
since April. The wrestler is back. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, keeping it strong style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. Let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your hosts Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The ace of podcasts On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Dobbin here with the young boy Josh Smith and the implications Matthew Mayer from LOP Radio. On today's show, we'll be covering all the latest news, answering your questions, and discussing the NJPW career of Katsuyora Shibata. You can support our show by subscribing to the Social Suplex Podcast Network or to Keeping It Strong Style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating and review. You can get all of our podcasts and columns over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro and Tees store, ProWrestlingTees.com slash Social Suplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong Style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting SocialSuplex.com slash donate and clicking on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. This week's episode is brought to you by NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and shared playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. Visit NJPWEXT.us today for details. And also, voting for next week's episode will drop tomorrow at noon. Well, by the time you listen to this, at noon time. And the theme of the poll is Best IC Champions. And we will have Sir Sam on from LLP. Voting options will be Shinsuke Nakamura, Tetsuya Naito, Hiroshi Tanahashi, and Hiroki Goto. So get your votes out there. Visit our Twitter account, at KI Strong Style, to vote in our polls and to decide what we talk about each week. And as you by no, may know by now, the winner for this week was Katsuyora Shibata. Like I mentioned in the intro, we have Imp from LLP. Imp, how are you doing, man? I am doing as well as I can for <laughs> times right now. Yeah, it's been a difficult few weeks, but like we're getting through it. And we've got the wrestling community kind of all come together. And it's like that's what it generally helps uh, as Somebody who's also got a show of his own, that's really helped to kind of get stuff off my chest and just, just yeah, just it works as a bit of therapy, really, to get through that. But watching New Japan these last few days has just reminded me how much I love wrestling. That's really helped. 
because I've not watched. I've, I've really distanced from wrestling since the lockdown. Like I go live after pay per views for laws of pain, but aside from that, I'm not really watching Raw. I'm not really watching SmackDown. I've not watched a single minute of NXT. Uh, everything I know about NXT, I learn from uh, from uh, James and Rich on One Nation Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Generally, I'm not watching it, and uh, yeah, so I'm not really the best to cover pay per views then. <laughs> but laws of pain have me to do it still. Not told me to piss off yet, <laughs> so that's good. But uh, yeah, so watching New Japan these past few weeks, uh, past, not this past few weeks, this past weekend, that's really really helped. And uh, in terms of the vote as well, it's landed nicely. Uh, so Sam was messaging me because, uh, of course, he's going to be covering Intercontinental Champions. And he's got his finger on one certain person who he really wants to win. <laughs> and uh, uh, spoilers, that person was in this vote as well. But both Tanner and Nakamura are in his vote as well. So that's not really any spoilers. Because I was going to say, I was pretty sure it was Goto. <laughs> not enough people want to talk about Goto. God, <laughs> but, I, would, I would love to do a Goto show. <laughs> like, for real, actually. <laughs> Josh, what, what were your thoughts on how the polling went down and how close it was? Yeah, I was just going to mention. So, you know, um, Imp was mentioning, uh, you know, Sir Sam and, you know, his votes and, uh, you know, who he's pulling for. And here's the thing his vote might have been the difference maker because. For the second week in a row, this thing came down to the wire. We're talking one, two vote difference. You know, the the good thing is that it's actually breaking one way or the other because I don't think we've even discussed what's going to happen when hypothetically there even is a tie, which thank God we haven't had one so far. But, uh, you know, if you guys are out there listening, it's the early part of the show. We are telling you again for the second week in a row, go out and vote on our Twitter timeline it's going to be dropping literally in at uh, noontime uh, Tuesday afternoon, and you can go on there and vote for for you know whichever IC champion you'd like to hear. And we're going to be doing that this every week until we come back, you know, live. But um, it is surprising. We we thank you to everybody that's uh, voting, but like for the viewership that this kind of that this podcast gets versus how many votes we get during that that one day it's kind of disproportionate you'd i i sort of thought we'd have more votes but um you know i think that as this uh trend kind of uh catches on we want more and more of you to be involved with what we're doing so we want your voice to be heard so you know uh when the when the voting drops be sure to vote yeah get you get your voice out that's how you directly impact the show what we talk about and yeah it's been some close races and a lot of people disappointed that you know Kenny wasn't didn't win and Nakamura didn't win, um, <laughs> but uh, I, I just was so I was just so surprised that Tanahashi literally was dead last when it came to the three new Musketeers. I thought it would be a little bit closer, but it seems that the nostalgia kick is in, or you know, I'm not really sure what it is, but uh, a lot more people wanted to hear about Nakamura and Shibata this week than they did about the Ace, you know? Yeah, and again, yeah, I was th- talking. Oh, I, was talking to, I was talking to Sam about that, and he was telling me, uh, and I was just thinking, nah, I remember lol Tanner wins from when I started watching. That was a thing. People like Tanahashi. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> yeah. leaving him out. <laughs> and then, no, he's like 20% behind everybody else. <laughs> I've got my own love for Tanahashi. <laughs> Maybe that blinded me in this occasion. Yeah, and part of it, I think, is very similar to the Bullet Club leader situation where 
if you've listened to this show for a long time, you know, for World Club Leaders, we covered kind of Kenny's major heavyweight run. And if you listen to the show, we've covered Tanahashi's major run. And we covered a little bit of Nak. I think, did we cover Nakamura at the end there when we started? Or was he gone already? He was gone already. So yeah, we didn't He's co- gone. Yeah, we didn't cover Nakamura at, at all on this show. So Nakamura and Chibata were two guys that we didn't get to talk about on this show. And so I'm sure people are kind of curious about our takes and just kind of want to hear our thoughts on those guys' careers. Well, you know, here's the thing is, like, I think there's definitely some validity to that, but it's a little unfortunate because you think about Tanahashi's run. I mean, the guy debuted in 1999, and New Japan didn't really become super accessible to the majority of current-day fans until 2015. So you're talking, like, 15, 16 years of an incredible career that weren't really highlighted or, you know, aren't talked about that much and really aren't covered. And uh, as great as Tanahashi's been the last five years, a lot of people missed out on 15 of those years or 16 of them. So, yeah, that's why I was kind of hoping he might have won. But, um, you know, I'm in a different boat than uh, Imp here. You know, he said that this reminded him of why he loved wrestling. But on, on my end, that watching these Shibata matches has broken my heart because we're never going to get this man back. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm realizing what new, what wrestling is missing. They're missing the wrestler, Katsuyori Shibata. My God, bro. Yeah, so let's kick off the discussion here. Like, thoughts on Shibata, his character, his wrestling style, your first impressions, maybe the first time you saw him wrestle. Imp, you want to well, go ahead? Yeah, for me, it was, well, again, with... I started watching during the G1 Climax 2014. So luckily for me, it's piss easy to remember when I started, when I first saw everybody, because it's the same tournament, like the same show is when I first saw everybody. <laughs> it's really, that's really convenient. But uh, there were two people who immediately jumped out at me. Uh, one was Tamaki Honma. I loved that guy when I first watched the show. I didn't get Tanahashi at first. I was like, the air guitar guy, he's there. Top, but all right then. <laughs> and then... Nakamura, then I remember during the because it was they just do a, did a video in the arena and they didn't delete any of the like uh, the I forgot what the word is when the, it's brilliant for podcast content the inter, inter me, intermission there we bloody go they were, they didn't cut out any of the intermission and during it they played a like cartoon comic book thing of Shinsuke Nakamura and he was the main event of that show I was like oh oh so this is the other guy to the Tanahashi he's the big guy. And then he comes out and immediately loses to Bad Luck Farley because that's who they were pushing at the time. So I didn't really feel Nakamura either. But Honma and the other guy was Shibata, who immediately just... He was different to everybody else. And obviously at the time, I didn't know the history. I didn't know anything about the three Musketeer, new Three Musketeers or anything about the Shibata's kind of relationship with New Japan or anything. I just saw this guy who was in the middle of the card have an absolutely awesome match. And the way he carried himself, no one else in that tournament carried themselves like Shibata. He was totally unique. And just the way that he was just focused and just went to the ring and just kicked the crap out of somebody. <laughs> I was just uh, immediate, immediately he left an impression on me. And to say that I was introduced to so many characters in such a short amount of time that I knew nothing about. Uh, it's, and to say what Shibata's gimmick is as well, where he's the wrestler. And that's uh, he is that serious and that it's kind of that simple of a character. It's not difficult to understand, but he stood out in a world full of, as we know, like New Japan characters are really lively and there's a lot to them. 
but Shibata stood out and he was unique and uh, that meant a lot to me and he became my favourite over the course of the tournament. Uh, of course, I didn't know what had happened the year previously and because, of course, uh, commentators in Japanese as well, so I can't learn any story or history during it. <laughs> so I had no idea he'd reached the final year before. Um, but yeah, he was instantly one of my favourites and little did I know what he would then go to do at the Wrestle Kingdoms over the following years and really cement himself as one of my favourites. Nice. Yeah. What are you, Josh? For um, yeah, for me. Although I've always enjoyed New Japan, I don't know that I really became too keenly aware of Shibata prior to Wrestle Kingdom Nine. So I'm I'm guessing the first time that I really recall him um, was Wrestle Kingdom when him and uh, Hiroshi Goto is that his name? Hiroki Goto. <laughs> Oh, yeah. God, <laughs> how did, I, I knew I messed up. I just woke up from a nap, ladies and gentlemen, so I'm like, my brain's not working. Yeah, the first Hiroshi Goto, my God. Uh, the first time him and uh, Hiroki Goto, they wrestled um, Gallows and Anderson uh, at the Tokyo Dome. And I don't remember the match really being anything spectacular, but I remember, um, you know, him kind of just being one of those guys. He, he came out, he's wearing the black you know, kick pads, the black knee pads, the the black trunks, and he's just very, very serious. And it's like, sort of like Stone Cold Steve Austin kind of dressed like that, and you kind of knew immediately, even without him having flashy attire, you knew who his character was because of his mannerisms, because of his attitude, because of the way he wrestled. You knew he was a badass and that he was, you know, gonna, you know, take no prisoners and take no, you know, just destroy guys that's kind of the impression i got from shibata plus uh you know having like a vast uh you know fandom of like shoot style wrestling and like the uwf guys and everything like his look completely reminded me of that like he was such a throwback to you know your kanemoto's and you know your kira maida's and guys like that like that's kind of, and even you know inoki himself like that's kind of what he always reminded me of so like shibata just is awesome, man. I mean, I can't imagine, like, I remember so many times in my life playing wrestling video games. And I think the, the a majority of the time, like the guy, kind of guys I would like create pretty much were like some sort of like amalgamation or prototype for like what Shibata basically is like someone who just comes in and like backhands people, chops them, headbutts them, throws elbows, jump, you know, drop kicks, giant suplexes, and just fucks people up. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, this, uh, the, the other thing, one other thing that, um, Shibata has always really reminded me of is in a sense, Taz, someone who might not be the biggest person in the promotion, but like is taken more seriously than anybody else. Like he's someone that, you're kind of scared of, or, you know, you're kind of nervous because everything he does looks stiffer. Everything he does looks more realistic. And he just has like an aura about himself that like, yo, I, everything else I watched was like good and stuff, but this is different. Like this looks and feels real. And this guy is like, it's exactly a shoot. who he's, <laughs> it's a shoot, brother. It's a shoot. Oh man. But yeah, uh, for me, I also, uh, Wrestle Kingdom 9 would have been the first time I saw Shibata. And again, like like you, Josh, that match, I don't really remember that match all that much with Bullet Club. Um, 
you know, I wasn't really following New Japan all that much. Like, I was kind of keeping aware of what was happening and following the big stuff kind of from Wrestle Kingdom 9 up until we started the show. And but so when I would pop in, I would, you know, every once in a while see one of his matches and just seeing, like, all right, this dude is real. Like, you're saying, like, no, no gimmicks, no nonsense. Like, the black trunks, like, he's ready to run it at all times. And I just think that kind of persona... It was just kind of refreshing, I guess. You know, when you're when you're watching mainly WWE or TNA, and obviously there, it's not as colorful as the '90s, but you still kind of have a lot of guys who are kind of quote unquote playing characters, or they have this like certain gimmick. And with Jibata, it didn't really feel that way. Like, this is me. Like, I'm I'm an ass kicker, and I'm gonna come out here and kick ass, and that's what he did. And it didn't, like I said, it doesn't feel like a gimmick and just felt so real and really brought you in. And then just the the level of intensity and just the, the level of danger you kind of got from watching his matches, like you mentioned, Josh, just made it kind of stand out and made it feel different from everything else on the card. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. With with that being the case, uh, there's a really good there's a couple really good videos. Um, we've recommended it on the show many times, but um if you want to go online, if you haven't seen these videos, uh, video content creator Showbuckle, he had uh, made a couple of videos back in the day. I think you can still catch those on Daily Motion now. Um, one is about how New Japan has shot the camera work that they use and their techniques and what how the presentation is different from other companies. And then the other one is the um, basically the, the background and story of Shibata's return to the company leading up to his challenge of Okada. And in both of these uh, videos, he kind of just really uh, highlights like how visceral a performer uh, Katsuyori Shibata was, and um, just little things like you know him being able to play to the camera, him being able to create moments using his facials and reading an audience, and and having the right kind of timing to. Uh, know when to do the right thing for maximum effectiveness and like as we've watched the the matches you just kind of see the same thing and it's like oftentimes he wasn't given uh, a main event slot in new japan he didn't have a ton of uh main event matches you know he kind of had to earn his role back in the company once he once he did come back but if they gave him a 15 minute never match or whatever he was going to maximize that and I remember people used to call Matt Riddle when he like first broke in. They said he was the king of the 15-minute match. Like, If he went over 15 minutes, it wasn't going to be great, but you keep it under 15, and this guy was going to like be the best performer in the world. And like Shibata was kind of like that, but like to a higher degree. Like They're like, kid, you got 15 minutes. He's like, all right, go follow this shit. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like nearly impossible for anyone to do it. Like... You know, New Japan's usually a company. You don't need a cool down match, but after a Shibata match, you kind of did need a cool down because <laughs> no one's gonna be able to to like keep up with his level of like visceral like violence. Like he's just one of the most violent wrestlers they ever had. It, it it's really incredible. And speaking about the violence, I don't know about you guys, but I literally cringed with every headbutt that I watched this weekend, watching all his matches. Just the sound of his headbutts <sighs> echoing out through whatever arena they would be in for each match it was just man. <laughs> but I rewatched 
He didn't ask me to, but I I watched every one of Tanahashi and Shibata's matches. I was like, I need context for this <laughs> one that I've chosen. I watch all of them. And even the yeah, online matches? Oh no, I'm not that mental. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think there's even like their one at oh, oh I forgot what it's really called. One of the ones earlier in the year. Uh, that one wasn't on New Japan World, and I was like, ah, uh, I don't need it. Are we fine? <laughs> I've got the general picture. But yeah, there's one point where he and Tanahashi are just exchanging headbutts, and he's just like, mm, I know where this goes. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like it's, it's not the same. I can't enjoy those matches as much as I used to. Yeah, and and you know what? Before the subdermal hematoma like even occurred, that had always been something that I personally I didn't have a platform. But like anytime I I would talk to somebody about it, I'd be like, I, they shouldn't do that. And it's really calmed down quite a bit since then in New Japan. But it's just one of those things that's like, there are so many things that could have potentially gone wrong that once his career ending, you know, injury occurred and, and, you know, to be true, we, it it probably is in large part due to the headbutts, but that's not the only uh, contributing factor from that match uh, that caused his injury, just to be fair. But it's, it's, it's definitely didn't help things. But you look back at, like, say, the Goto match that he had at Wrestle Kingdom just a few months prior to his retirement. And I think that that's one of the worst, like, headbutt matches I've ever seen. Like, I I remember them, like, I remember being in a group chat with people watching that live. And a friend of mine was like, this is the first time I've ever watched either of these guys. I've never seen New Japan. I was like, well, brother, you just got baptized by headbutts. Like, because <laughs> it was so violent. And I, I couldn't believe. And then. You know, unfortunately, even as great of a match that was, like the the Naito and Tanahashi match, as well as the Omega Okada match, kind of overshadowed it. So people didn't really talk about it. But that Goto Shibata match is easily one of the most violent matches I've ever seen in my life. And they headbutt each other. Like, there's one point where they're just hitting each other hard. Like, it, I don't know. It's like right up there with Nigel McGuinness and, uh, and Daniel Bryan. And, and look how things ended for those guys, you know? Right. Yeah, man, some scary stuff. But with that being, with everything being said, like, God, I, I miss, like, New Japan is great, and, you know, but this is, like, this one missing piece that they don't have right now. I mean, since, obviously, you can't replace a performer like Katsuyori Shibata, but, I mean, has anyone kind of, like, stepped into his placement for you guys as far as like what he brought to the table for the company since, since his retirement. Hmm. So, Cause for me, he kind of filled Nagata's shoes a little bit in that uh, kind of believability kind of level of his performances reaching that main event level. I, uh, no, I guess like the closest person is carried on that legacy, maybe Ishii, but Ishii is a completely different beast. Like, I, I can't think of anyone. Right, and Ishii was yeah, kind of already there. Um, obviously, we're gonna t- we're gonna talk about it. He had a rivalry with Ishii, so Ishii was kind of one of his counterparts and one of his rivals. But yeah, I, I can't. I don't feel like anybody's really stepped into his shoes. There's just nobody that's really kind of per- took up that you know quote unquote wrestler kind of shooter MMA guy. I mean. Obviously, there, there's like Minoru Suzuki, but again, you know, his career, you know, proceeds Shibata. And um, I think Suzuki doesn't always go the full out kind of shooter. You know, sometimes he kind of 
It's a little, it's kind of a gimmick thing he does, and kind of being a murder grandpa. And so, yeah, there haven't really been m- many people to kind of fill that role. Yeah, and I think what you what you'll find is as you start kind of discussing it, there's so many great talented people on the roster, and obviously, re- no wrestler is like a carbon copy of another necessarily. So you're not going to find someone that's exactly like him. But what I find is you're going to find a bunch of people that have attributes that he had, but not the complete package like him, you know, like Kodobushi has incredible strikes and things like that, but like maybe can't get into the MMA grappling like background and, you know, um, the kind of like dangerous things he does is more like aerial based and crazy bump taking, you know, it's different. You look at like Zack Sabre and like what he does on the ground, very similar. Obviously I think he's even at a higher level, but, you know, he's not in there, like, busting heads, like, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's it's it, it just, he was such a special competitor and such a special uh, performer. It's like, I wish we had more people that wrestled like Katsuyori Shibata, uh, you know, for better or for worse. Like, he's one of my all-time favorite guys. And, um, yeah, this just, re-watching this stuff, like, I loved it, but then it also made me sad because I'm like, dude, we're not going to, see anybody that's like this at, at all um right now in the company and i'm like you know i i, I miss it <laughs> <laughs> well, over here in the uk we've got a literal shooter in training and we've got shooter umino where <laughs> <laughs> he's but well, he's i guess tanahashi john moxley and he's called shooter so he's got to have a little bit of shibata in there as well he's all <laughs> those three rolled into one <laughs> and We've got him all to ourselves until he has to leave. But for a little while, <laughs> we've got the shooter. I, you know, since funny enough, when since you are bringing up Young Lions, I do think about the fact that Ren Narita is down there in the LA dojo right now, training with Katsuyori Shibata. And I've gone on record many times saying that he is mine. I, I think he's Jeremy's too, like our favorite Young Lion from that system. And um, God, I, I, I just can't imagine like what kind of product he's going to be after being down there all this time you know yeah dude i've got a slight bias because uh gabriel kidd who's uh, in the la dojo as well <laughs> <laughs> he's he's from nottingham so the same place as me so uh, i've got to support him <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves gabriel kidd. yeah yeah kid he's you know he looked good in his few appearances but yeah i'm really excited to see what happens with narita after he's you know kind of done training in the la dojo and just seeing what he brings he's already had a great strikes and that great amateur background. And, you know, we rave about all his Young Lions matches and, of course, the Young Lions Cup in 2017 with Yagi. If you have not watched that match yet, go back and watch that match, dude. Oh, my gosh. So much fun. We're, we're, we're like um, apologists for the Yagi and uh, Narita feud that no one else ever has talked about. It's just us. Like, those two matches are so fucking good. Yes. Dude, yeah awesome but uh yeah so let's get into this yeah so shibata so we'll start with talk about his early run so he makes his debut on october 10th uh 1999 and he in that debut he faces his close friend taro inui who we talked about a lot during the final countdown so that was his first opponent and then you know kind of from there along with tanahashi and nakamura coming out of the same kind of rookie class as him these guys get dubbed as the new three musketeers so 
what do you guys how did you guys feel about that and just how important the original musketeers were and the fact that people were kind of saying these guys were going to be the new three musketeers well the originals were the pillars of new japan for i won't say a, a long time but i guess it was that 90s decade like uh chono would continue for a little bit longer with the NWO stuff and a theme song, I Am Not Allowed to Sing. It's incredible watching it. <laughs> like now, it's just like, okay, that's a different culture, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting team choice. Uh, it feels like a badass, though. Jono just has that, that amazing aura, and that's probably why he was able to wrestle a bit longer, purely out of that. Uh, just his aura was enough for a little while. Uh, but uh, yeah, yeah, Muto and Hashimoto as well. They were pillar, the pillars of wrestling for New Japan, and it's it's a mi- weird mixed feeling with the three the new three musketeers because obviously it was Inoki like this is the future. I'm donning these three people as the three guys who are going to carry this business forward, just like the previous three did. They're going to be the next pillars, but uh, like off the bat, you could immediately tell well, that yeah, he's got they've all got potential, and in the end, he was proven right like a decade later, but. That's the point. It was a decade later. So, like, initial feelings, if you go back and watch those earlier matches, it's evident that they shouldn't be where they were at that point. It was way too early. And, uh, like, with the Tanahashi Nakamura main event at the Tokyo Dome, especially, they shouldn't have main evented that show. Like, if they did. I don't know if I'm having a brave part there. But they, they shouldn't have been in that position. And then you fast forward just a little bit later, uh, and they do main event Wrestle Kingdom's and they are like the main attractions, and it's proven Inoki was correct, and Shibata was up there. If he hadn't have left, we'll get to that later, obviously. But who knows if he would have been a pillar? But uh, it's, it's it's mixed feelings because he was right, but he rushed it. He WWE'd it. Just <laughs> charged them up to the moon when they probably weren't quite ready to be there. And later they found themselves and became the mega stars. Inoki had correctly seen that they would be. So it's it's not one, really. They did meet their projected future. It's just uh, there's a little bit of a bumpy road to get there. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting analysis. So, I mean, you know, with Shibata, he's actually the... He's not the oldest of the group, but as far as his... Uh, making his debut and entry into the dojo, he was in the dojo a year before Tanahashi and several years before Nakamura. Um, You know, the entire uh, history where people mentioned that they were called the, the new three musketeers. It wasn't like when they, I think a lot of people like to say they, they all came in at the same time and this is the new class and here they are as a fully formed thing that, isn't exactly how it happened. In fact, um, I'm forgetting who it was, but there was a, uh, another third wrestler that came in before Nakamura that they were originally saying, it might have even been Ainui, I, I can't remember, but they were saying, these are the three new Musketeers. And then once he didn't kind of pan out, they're like, Nakamura's here, super rookie, <laughs> new three Musketeers. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think the, the deal there was that all three of these guys were very special talents. Um, all three of them had incredible charisma, incredible looks, uh, could really work, and had a lot of star potential. And that's kind of what you got when Chono 
Hashimoto and um, Muto all first originally came along. And I think just the parallel was sort of there. So that's sort of what was the impetus. Plus, the company did their best in in mo- you know modern recent times when it, when they were under those three guys. So with the company kind of floundering, not doing so hot, what what better way than to come up with a marketing scheme? Kind of like you mentioned, WWE did. Vince loved to put the new on top of a tag team, the new Rockers, the new <laughs> yeah. Blackjacks. These are the new Three Musketeers. <laughs> the new but, generation. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, With you know, Charlie the, Sheen and <laughs> other actors from that film. <laughs> yeah. One thing that's interesting, though, you know, Shibata, um, his father, uh, his father's name is, God, I forget his dad's name. Um I forget it. Uh, his dad actually was a longtime performer. He performed for the JWA, and then also he was a mid card act in New Japan, and then eventually a um, referee. He refereed for New Japan for years and years and years. Uh, Katsuhisa, so Katsuhisa Shibata. So you know the difference with Shibata, with Katsuyori Shibata and the other guys was like he grew up around. The business, like he was there, he's a second generation guy. Like he was there from the time he was a little kid, and this is all he wanted to do. And, and uh, last point, speaking to what Imp said, compared to to uh, Tanahashi and Nakamura, I think that he was the most most fully formed guy of the three, who was given also the least amount of opportunity. Um, not to say that they didn't push him or not to say that they didn't give him pushes uh, and things like that. But when you look at what they did, you know, they built an entire title for Tanahashi. They built a whole division around him. You know, they they kept him a star for a long time and gave him top title runs and pay-per-view headlines, things like that. They rushed, you know, Nakamura to the moon right away and, you know, literally put the the crown on him like in his first year and then you've got uh you know shibata wrestling under a mask as makai number four like <laughs> and he's like in the juniors like not able to beat like kendo cashin and shit like uh but when you compare where he was as far as a performer as as far as his look his, and everything of that nature i think he kind of was more ready at least that's my opinion i always thought he was like looking back at it he's more he was more ready than the other guys were and maybe wasn't given the ball for whatever reason gotcha yeah i kind of missed out on, on all that kind of i know you got i know you josh two were kind of paying a little bit more attention back then and just um as shibata was kind of coming up and also a better understanding of the, of the three musketeers and what that kind of means but yeah it's very interesting that you know that these three guys were kind of had that thrusted on them. It was kind of a big, really big shoes for them to fill. Um, but it's very interesting to seeing how all three of their careers ended up and all the great things that all three of them eventually did would uh, do. So in uh, 2000, Shibata takes place in the Young Lions Cup. And again, kind of you were mentioning Josh's positioning here. In this Young Lions Cup, he finishes third place uh, with six points. Uh, but in the tournament, he had a, was involved in a very serious incident with, uh, I'm going to probably butcher this name, Masaya Kazu Fukuda. Is that how you say that, <laughs> that name? Masakazu Fukuda. <laughs> um, yeah, an injury caused by an elbow drop during the match. Fukuda w- was put in a coma and died four, la- four days later. 
Josh, do you know much anything about that incident or heard about that incident? Yeah, it happened. Uh, it's not really talked about much. You don't hear very much about it. Um, I've never seen the match, and I don't know if it was due to negligence or if it's just a freak accident because sometimes things happen, you know. But I do know about it, yeah. Yeah, I know he... Uh, the guy had a previous of like a brain hemorrhage, I think it was, and he'd already mm. had surgery, and uh, he'd only recently returned. I don't know how long it was since he'd been back, and so when that uh, freak accident happened, it was his second brain sur- immediate like brain surgery as well, and um, apparently it was one of those where it was immediately so serious that everyone on the New Japan staff was there overnight, like staying with him. Uh, Hashimoto, who wasn't even with the company at that point, he also, when he found out, he immediately drove there, apparently, and was with them the entire time. So it was, at the time, treated like a big deal, but obviously I don't know what the, how big it was in the press or anything, because not Japanese, and it's not really talked about all these years later. Yeah. So if I hadn't researched it, I wouldn't know it ever happened. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, um... It's just interesting you mentioned that, you know, a wrestler who has brain injury making return what kind of implications that could have for that individual just throwing it out there mm. red crumbs <laughs> yeah uh, I, I almost made a bad joke i was gonna say long long <laughs> long-term booking <laughs> long-term storytelling oh that's my, messed up oh my gosh <laughs> that's up. Uh, so moving on from that incident chibata continues to work its way up the junior ranks and he challenges the iwgp junior champion at the time kendo cashin in uh, october 28 2001 but he lost he would then team up with uh wataru inui to challenge for the iwgp junior tag titles on two occasions uh but both times losing to jato and gato who were the champions at the time then going to 2003, Shibata would graduate from the heavy, heavyweight division and join the Makai Club, wrestling as himself in Makai number four. So can you guys explain what the Makai Club is and why he was wrestling also as Makai number four? Yeah, so the Makai Club was sort of like a group of wrestlers that um, wanted to like make a return to... Uh, true Inokiist like strong style and there were some wrestlers that were given opportunities to uh join the club and wrestle under masks uh in kind of like nameless positions so sort of like nameless goons um does that sound familiar like any other promotions you might know of (laughs) (laughs) um ultimately though he was able to uh, drop the Makai four sort of thing. I th- and actually, if I remember correctly, it's been a long time. I think he was kind of wrestling as Shibata and as Makai number four. Yeah, like he was wrestling as both. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was sort of like they didn't like, I don't know if he, he did double duty on some shows or whatever, but uh, yeah. And he's not the only guy that did that, but he's one of them. Um, but yeah, I, the one thing I do remember is that him and Murakami were in that group together. And at blue crush too. Murakami had this ongoing thing where he was doing a challenge where he would uh, do an open challenge. Anybody who could come whoop his ass, uh, he would pay them a certain amount, and the the bounty got bigger every time. And at Blue Crush 2 in the Tokyo Dome, even though Shibata was in the group, he decided to cash in. <laughs> <laughs> and he was nowhere near like the level of Murakami as far as the booking at the time. It's like late 2003. And uh, he tries to come in, and Murakami, like, 
beats his ass before the match starts and literally busts him open. Uh, Shibata blades and is just a bloody mess. And then he gets in the ring, the match starts, and he like jumps uh, Murakami, just throwing strikes. But Murakami like quickly takes over, and it's like one of the most vicious beatings in New Japan history. Like it's kind of shocking to see Shibata get beat so bad. Like match is like three or four minutes long. And yeah, he shouldn't he shouldn't have fucked with Murakami that night. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so from there in Makai Club for uh, July two thousand three, he challenges for both the IWGP Tag Titles and the IWGP U thirty Openweight Championship, but uh, fails to win either of those belts. He would then enter the two thousand three G one Climax, where he placed third in his block with five points. Uh, the following year, in July of ni- July 19th of 2004, he would receive his first ever shot at the IWGP Heavyweight Championship against Fujita, which he lost by knockout. Yeah, and that'd be his last title shot for 13 years. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this match is really good, though. Like, um, I don't know. It d- it depends on. I wouldn't say it's like a, cl- a great classical wrestling match, but. In terms of entertaining, hard-hitting, like, Inokiest-era New Japan stuff, I like this match a lot. I like Kazuka Fujita. Not everybody does, but, like, I like guys that just, like, do faux MMA and, like, beat the shit out of each other. And that's kind of, like, what <laughs> that's kind of like what him and uh, Shibata did. And it's kind of cool. I feel like Fujita gets a little bit thrown under the Inoki bus a little bit. Because he was one of those guys who was actually pretty good. But I didn't mind him either. It doesn't help that... If I remember it rightly, is he mixed up in the Bot Lesnar era as well? He's at he's at the tail end. So I mean, the deal is they brought in Lesnar, and him and Lesnar were they had been pushing him like Japanese Brock Lesnar, and that's what people were calling him. So when Lesnar came over, it was this big dream match, but Fujita wouldn't drop the belt to him. So that's why they they did the uh, the triple threat match with Chono and had Chono. Uh, do the job to Lesnar and they were supposed to build to a Fujita Lesnar match and Fujita left the company and for business reasons didn't end up working out and Fujita like I, I think he probably did make some other appearances but as a regular performer and you know being in the title mix that was pretty much it for him so when Lesnar came he kind of left mm. said I'm, I'm not doing the job I'm out of here <laughs> yeah <laughs> pretty much and, uh, you know, it's interesting, like, that's an interesting time in the title's history because the title was being passed back and forth in such rapid succession. Like, it never had been before and hasn't been since. Like, that was the, you know, the the one time in the company's history where I think there's one year where it changed hands like eight times, uh, which is crazy. And, um, you know, Inoki was booking it sometimes based off of MMA wins and losses, so like, and that's why Fujita really got the push was because he was a badass and he beat people in MMA, and like he won the belt um, from Bob Sapp without actually winning the belt. Like Bob Sapp was the champion; they were supposed to fight for the IWGP title, but before they had that fight, they had an actual either MMA or kickboxing fight. I think it was kickboxing, but it might have been MMA. And, and Fujita beat Bob Sapp. So Bob Sapp decided not to do the actual wrestling match, and then they just decided to posthumously like award the title to Vegeta because he beat his ass in a in a <laughs> an MMA fight. Like shit didn't make sense back then. <laughs> but, 
I never saw. I've never actually seen Bob Sapp wrestle in New Japan Ring. Uh, I know about the title range and the story <laughs> it goes with, but I have seen. Uh, there's a promo he did where Bob Sapp goes to the zoo, and um, just a title like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I've seen uh, the Matt Hardy. I've seen Matt Hardy goes to the zoo. That that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so after this Vegeta title match, um, Shibata enters the 2004 G1 Climax, and he wins his block, scoring eight points. And in this tournament, he defeats several former IWGP champions. He defeats Chono, Nakamura, and Tenryu, um, but eventually would lose in the semifinals to the eventual winner, Hiroshi Tenzon. Um, following the G1, Shibata joined Chono's new stable, Black New Japan, where he remained until he would eventually leave New Japan in January of 05. So what was uh, Black New Japan? I've never heard of this stable. New Japan Black was uh, basically when um, it was after Team 2000. Like, you know, I, I'm not completely the full historian on this stuff, but there was NWO Japan and then NWO Japan split into Team 2000 and then, you know, and it was basically Wolfpack and NWO Hollywood, same storyline. Gotcha. And then, and then eventually, like having your team being called Team Two Thousand, but it's two thousand and five, doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually, they became like uh, New Japan Black, and I'm sure there are other storyline elements to it, but I'm I'm not. One of the things I'm not as familiar with in general is a lot of the older factions, you know, yeah. because we weren't like able to kind of keep up with those storylines even when we were watching. Like, you know, we'd get the matches, but we don't we don't see the promos and all that sort of stuff. I'm I'm sure someone knows better than I do. That person's not me. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, speaking speaking of what you mentioned here, so the 2004 G1 really, I remember that kind of like. Looking back on it, there's some, some really awesome matches. You know, they were starting to push Shibata, like, for real. Obviously, he won his block. Uh, you know, winning your block always does mean something, even if back then they used the whole semifinal, um, you know, situation or system. And ob- obviously, he didn't make it to the finals, uh, but he still won the block, which meant that they were giving him a pretty substantial push. And I remember him having like bangers with like Blue Wolf and different people like that. Like he he did really well in the 2004 G1. It was very apparent that he was in line for a big push at this point, but that was not to be so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So January 05, he leaves New Japan, and obviously this is a, a really big deal as we've seen Japanese wrestlers leave promotions throughout the years and jump from Noah to New Japan or jump to, um, you know, Dragon Gate or whatever promotion it is, it's kind of a, it's kind of a big deal and kind of a big kind of disrespectful thing. You, you kind of grow up in that dojo system and you usually stay with that company for life or that's, that's the expectation. Um, and then Shibata jumps ship here. Yeah. So speaking on this, um, so there's a few things like it's, it's kind of hard to know exactly all the details sort of surrounding this, you know, in retrospect, because there's a lot of angles and a lot of different things people have said, and I'm not really sure. But like you mentioned, Jeremy, this was a huge, huge deal. I think it kind of became the main, like, defining aspect of 
who Shibata was for such a long time after this, even to this day, like the company still talks about his exodus from the company. Um, and it kind of depends on who you believe as far as what the motivation was. I mean, on the one hand, when he left with Murakami, they left to go form Big Mouth Loud. And the idea was that they were going to build the company around Shibata. So, you know, you have a man who's kind of faced with two options, a potential opportunity to grow and be as top star in the, at that point, probably the second biggest company. Cause they were kind of falling behind Noah at that point, but he could kind of see the handwriting on the wall, the company, you know, I know he wasn't long for the company. He's about to be out. There's tons of turmoil. They're not drawing so well. The direction stylistically is all over the place. There's a lot of like internal struggle and politics, things of that nature. And he's kind of like, do I stay here in the company that my father was in that I grew up in and try to make something of myself? And maybe I get the push, maybe I don't. Or do I go to Big Mouth Loud and get a guaranteed push, or so he thought? <laughs> <laughs> What really ended up happening is that he went to Big Mouth. And here's another thing, too, was things were changing stylistically. And one of the few guys who served to benefit from Inokiism was Shibata because of his style and because of and because he was a talented shooter and fighter. He's one of the few guys that would have thrived under it had he had the timing been a little bit different. But they were starting to go away from that in 2005, and he actually didn't like it. And he's one of the most vocal guys about them not going away from Inoki's uh, style and his philosophies. And that's kind of why he left to go to Big Mouth Loud. When when him and Murakami left, they said, we're the real New Japan because we're going to do real Inoki New Japan. <laughs> and um, But what really ended up happening was he went there and he wasn't as big of a star as he thought he was. And every single time they brought in a top guy, every single time they brought in a top guy, he got his ass beat. And he lost. And it's probably the one one of the things that really that in his MMA career hurt him from a marketing standpoint. So a lot of times the story is that when he returned, that he had to earn the respect of the of the company. But that's not in, that is true, but it's not entirely true. The reality is is that his runs were unsuccessful outside of New Japan, and that hurt him from a marketing standpoint. They couldn't push him because he lost to all these top stars and people remember him leaving the company and going away and making headwaves and then getting beat all the time. Mm. Uh, no, in that period as well, uh, there's the uh, Tanahashi match at the Tokyo Dome. Mm -hmm. where I don't actually know narratively how that fits in. All I know is like for the future uh, and I guess uh, fits in, in with Tanahashi's story as well. It's a really good match, and it's a really good setup for their future matches as well. Right, Tanahashi, it feels like a uh, MMA guy destroys a wrestling guy kind of Inoki era type of thing that would happen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's Shibata and Tanahashi, and it really, really works where you've got Tanahashi trying to fight back und from underneath after Shibata from the get-go just goes crazy with his MMA. Like, it's long-form storytelling after Shibata got his ass kicked. Like, he's the one to bring the ass kicking this time. <laughs> it's a, it's, a, it's it's generally great watch if you are, are mental enough to watch more like yeah, loads of Shibata matches. But yeah, it's a Tanahashi fighting back from underneath, and Shibata's the one who wins, which is why I've 
like I was more confused like narratively when watching that because I was thinking, well, surely Tanahashi's going to win because he's a New Japan guy. Nope, Shibata just he's him <laughs> down. Yeah, that that's one of the interesting things with some of those Wrestle Kingdoms and early shows like that. I think this is pre Wrestle Kingdom, but it was January fourth Tokyo Dome show. It was in two thousand six. Uh, was it the first Wrestle Kingdom? Uh, uh, I don't remember, but. Um, <laughs> They 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 used to do a lot of cross promotion for those uh, Tokyo Dome shows. Uh, it's not like how it is today, where most of the matches have stories that have built and there's anticipation. Most of these most of the matches back then would be dream matches with no build, no anticipation. Sometimes they were announced very shortly ahead of time, and that was sort of one of those cross promoted matches. Obviously, there was the history between Tanahashi and. Um, Shibata and Tanahashi had been very vocal in the press and in different, uh, you know, media about his displeasure with Shibata leaving the company when they were not doing so great financially. And, uh, there was real heat between those guys. I think the match is very good, but it's more of an interesting match than I'd say a great match because both those guys were kind of in their primes at the time. And, they put on much better matches in, say, 2013, 2014 than they did in 2006. Uh, so it, it's kind of interesting in that aspect. But uh, you're absolutely right. It's sort of like an MMA guy wrestling a, you know, a modern-day, you know, New Japan star like Tanahashi kind of became. And I think the reason Tanahashi was good, is that, good at that was because for the first few years of his career, that's what he had to do because he was wrestling in an Inokiist New Japan, and he was getting beat up by those guys all the time. Like, and that's the style he had to wrestle. And I think he hated it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and Wrestle Kingdom is 2007 because, of course, it was named after the video game that was. Uh, that, yeah, that's yeah, right. So, so all Japan, New Japan together is the first show. So yeah, that's it. Yeah. So in this kind of exodus from New Japan, after he eventually would leave professional wrestling and transition into an MMA career. Um, so how did that go for him, Josh? Well, um, one thing I think that's worth mentioning before he left, you know, what, when he was on his, uh, access, the other really notable, a couple other notable things. One was the tag team with Kenta. Um, they tagged uh, a bit in Noah. I think it kind of, I think in retrospect, people really love that tag team. And it kind of gets overhyped just a smidge because they didn't have that many tag matches, but they were really high profile at the time. And you kind of did get to see Shibata in the ring with guys like uh, Mizawa and things like that, which was really, really cool, you know? Um, and then aside from Team Takeover, there was the match he had at Wrestle One with Junakiyama, which even still today is his second highest rated cage match match. Uh, and it's like 13 minutes. It's one of the most violent things you've ever seen. Um, I had some friends over just before the, uh, AW pay-per-view the other week. We watched that. You can actually find it on YouTube pretty easily. And it is, if you've never seen it and you want to see a great early Shibata match, that's the one to check out. Like, holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, Yeah, so Shibata uh, eventually had, I think he always had aspirations to go into uh, MMA. Um, You know, he was a 
national uh, he was he, he was wrestling at the national level in 1997 before he got into new japan and not only that but he had quite a bit of uh actual shoot style training he trained with uh masakatsu funaki who was the co-founder of pancrase along with uh um god why do i forget names uh <laughs> with, uh with minoru suzuki and he also had trained alongside uh, Kazushi Sakuraba, who I, I would venture a lot of people would say those are two of the all-time greatest Japanese MMA fighters. So I know in, in 2004 and in 2003, he had a couple shoot fights under with New Japan. Um, one was a kickboxing fight that he lost. And then the other one was a fight in jungle fight that he won. And... Um, you know, that, that's kind of part of the reason why he was getting the push in 2004, by the way, <laughs> was because if you, if you could win an MMA fight in Inokiist, uh, New Japan, like, you know, you were going to get a push. Uh, but after that, he signed a deal with, uh, heroes, K1 heroes. So K1 was like the largest kickboxing company, um, in the world. And they branched out into MMA and formed, a. uh, company to compete with pride fighting called k1 heroes and so he signed with them in 2007 he had his first fight he won it by tko uh he knocked out uh yoshihisa yamamoto who is a pretty famous fighter he's like a journeyman fighter he didn't win a lot of fights he he start that guy also was a pro wrestler he started with uh fighting network rings under akira maeda i think he's the only person who could say he's fought both akira maeda and uh uh, Katsuyori Shibata. <laughs> but um, also, Yoshihisa Yamamoto fought Mark Kerr one time, and he beat Mark Kerr because Mark Kerr knocked himself out uh, doing a double leg takedown. He like hit the ground and didn't get up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after that, like he just sucked. Like <laughs> <laughs> he fought, he fought Helic Gracie and he got submitted. He fought uh, Kazushi Sakuraba. He got submitted. He fought Jason Miller. He got knocked out. He fought Yoshihiro Akiyama. He got uh, choked out. Um, one famous fight in 2008 at, uh, at the dynamite event, which was like the, the year end big event, he fought, uh, Hayato Mox Sakurai. And when the fight started, he ran at Sakurai the way that he's done in some of his, uh, pro wrestling matches, like the ones with Ishii and like Goto, he literally ran at Sakurai and like threw a flying drop kick and like dropped him and almost knocked Sakurai out. But, uh, Sakurai got up and knocked him out. <laughs> <laughs> um, his one really big win, he, he beat, uh, Ikuhisa Minoa, who also is known as Minoa Man, who's like a, a also a pro wrestler. He's actually Tiger Mask Five. A lot of people are always wondering, you know, when Tiger Mask Five is going to happen. They don't realize he's been he already exists, and that's Minoa Man, even though he doesn't really wrestle uh, very much anymore. But he beat Minoa at Dream Eight, so he left K One and uh, joined a company called Dream, uh, which was kind of like the follow up to Pride, and he beat him in two thousand nine. But after that, like. He, he went, he had one more win and then he went on another five fight losing streak. So like when he ended his career in 2011, by the time he left, like he was fighting in small companies like deep and K one, like deeps, like a kind of like your indie level version of like MMA. Like they're sort of like an underground company. And yeah, he ended his career with four wins, 11 losses and one draw. So 
it's not really the most sterling record, honestly. And it's kind of surprising it took, you know, five years for him to realize that maybe MMA wasn't for him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like maybe I should go back to pro wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> so then eventually he would come back to New Japan. So August 12, 2012, he would come back to New Japan with Sakuraba. And those guys would form a tag team and... Um, then on September 23rd of that Laughter year, 7 Yeah, Laughter 7 um, September 23rd they defeated Hiromu Takahashi and Wataru Inui in a tag match um, And then from there that's when they started be ca- being called Laughter 7 And they would go on to win at the next two big events At King of Pro Wrestling and Power Struggle Both times they defeated Togi Makabe and Wataru Inui And so here's where the rivalry between Chibata and Togi Makabe started which led to their big grudge match at Russell Kingdom 7, uh, January 4th, 2013, where Togi Makabe would get the win there. Uh, any thoughts on the, on the rivalry with Makabe and uh, Shibata? Um, I do remember the uh, Shibata tag team. I don't really honestly remember much about the, uh, the Togi Makabe feud or even the Wataru Anui. Um obviously it makes all the sense in the world because him and Wataru Anui were like best friends. So it kind of makes sense for him to kind of face off against one of his uh you know former friends slash rivals from their young lion days and everything of that nature. And they even tagged team together when they were both juniors they tagged quite a bit together. So kind of made sense. But uh I don't know. I I have a feeling that the Wrestle Kingdom match with Toby Makape probably isn't that Great, because I've never heard a recommendation or anything for it. I can look it up, but I mean, what do you guys think? That was my that was the uh, that match was the moment that I realized with Maccabe because uh, he's got his dubbed theme, but at Wrestle King at that Wrestle Kingdom they didn't dub it, and he properly came out, and mm. I was like, oh shit, this guy's a badass. <laughs> <laughs> with that theme, <laughs> like suddenly it's like. Oh, uh, what? Well, I hate to bring him up. But it, it's like um, Hogan when he came up to Eye of the Tiger. It's like, oh, I suddenly get it. <laughs> As in just suddenly it all, the whole package suddenly makes sense when you watch what it originally was. And it's like, oh, I get it now. <laughs> and so with Togi Makabe, it's like, oh, uh, yeah, he is a badass. And with Shibata, like, he, he sells he's a badass so damn well. And... Um, that just set the tone for me when I watched it because after I watched uh, G1 Climax 2014, I watched the Wrestle Kingdom and that was I didn't watch anything else up until the actual uh, Wrestle Kingdom year after. And it's just like, oh, I it that was me realizing that these two guys are both badasses and then they just kicked and punched the shit out of each other <laughs> for a little while. It's nowhere near the levels of the other stuff or like really any of the matches that we watched, but it's. It was my introduction to that, like I was getting kind of let in, as in, it was my kind of little ease into, <laughs> just to say, like, right, this is your little nice ease into strong style. We're not going to drop you in too heavy. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, the match looks interesting. Uh, you know, cage, the users at Cage Match have it rated at, with an aggregate score of 6.35, which isn't really that high but then you look at dave Meltzer's score and he's got it at a solid at a smooth four stars <laughs> mm. but um there's there's there are some um some interesting you know comments that i'm reading here and you know there's some that are very critical and then some that uh 
are very positive. But the one thing that everyone's saying is that this match was very short. And I'm looking at the official match time. It went eight minutes and 37 seconds. So it's probably a really easy watch. I think I'm going to uh, put down the docket, something to watch for sure. I mean, if Dave Meltzer is giving a, an eight minute match four stars, that it has to be good. It's, <laughs> it's got to be good. <laughs> but there's people saying that there's a lot of no selling and like, like things like that. So yeah, I, I I'll, have to watch it to kind of see but i do you know looking back that is the first kind of major feud that shibata had in new japan once he made his return i do know when he returned there was a lot of pushback against shibata's no selling which it's mad to think about now but there was a little bit of a pushback to that kind of style uh, given what tanahashi kind of was setting the tone at um, and that might explain some of the backlash against a match full of no selling, where of course you reach him versus Ishii, and people are going mental for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and you know, and I think also his um, his uh, psychology kind of gradually changed as as you watch more and more Shibata over the time. So he got better at doing the no selling strategically throughout the match and it wasn't so much just uh you can't hurt me sort of thing it was more like i'm you're hurting me but i'm gonna i'm not going to sell that you're hurting me until it's time to sell and now it means something because you 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 put a chink in my armor and like it hurts you know what i mean but um i think a lot of times like early shibata didn't really do that like he just was like take the hit and he's like i'm a badass and Fuck you! You're not hurting me. <laughs> <laughs> he's not gonna. He's not gonna Leo rush that shit. <laughs> <laughs> so he loses the match to Makabe at Wrestle Kingdom Seven. Then from there, him and Sakuraba would team up once again and win at um, New Beginning, February 10th. They defeated Hiroki Goto and Toru Inui, and here's where the rivalry with Hiroki Goto. Would start, then they would move on to Invasion Attack the next month, where Shibata and Sakuraba would lose to Goto and Yuji Nagata via ref stoppage uh, when Sakuraba was injured and unable to continue the match, which would then lead to Shibata and Goto's first singles match, uh, May 3rd at Wrestling Dantaku of that year, which ended in a draw. And this would set up the first match that we watched and, re- and we're going to review right now the rematch. Happening on June twenty second at Dominion. Yeah, uh, so this is the match that I picked for our review, and so it's going to be the first match that we review here. But you know, part of the setup of this is the rivalry between Goto and um, Shibata is very interesting because it, it was always acknowledged and played up heavily uh, in New Japan that both of these guys were, <clears throat> excuse me, schoolmates growing up and lifelong friends. And, you know, of of all the uh, different people that have kind of been portrayed as friends of Shibata, there, obviously there's Kenta that we mentioned in Noah. And those, those two guys said that they kind of had like a kindred spirit based on their philosophies and wrestling styles and stuff. But like with Goto, it was different. Like these guys knew each other like when they were in school, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, so when Shibata sort of like made his return, it kind of was a natural fit that eventually – these two guys would lock up, uh, you know, lock horns. And that's kind of what we got here. And obviously the, the big build is they had a match at Dantaku 
it went to a draw, so inconclusive. And not only that, the match wasn't really that great. Like, it's kind of good, but if I, I remember watching it just thinking a lot of things kind of just didn't click for whatever reason. So I don't know how anticipated this rematch was, but uh, let's get into it. So we're at Dominion in um, 2013, and it's also kind of uh, shocking because we are not at Osaka Joe Hall. Yeah. Which you know, um, I'm, I'm, I'm I was I was watching this and I was like, man, I forgot they Dominion, their second largest show of the year. They used to run a eight thousand seat building instead of you know the sixteen thousand and plus. You know they do it at Osaka every year. Yeah, right now like New Japan is you know in the process of continuing to heat back up. Business is slowly starting to get better until they eventually kind of get to that spot where we know today. So yeah, what were you guys' thoughts on this Shibata Goto match? It's well, it's Shibata Goto. Like every one of their matches, um, I feel like uh, the Wrestling Dontaku one kind of it feels like again that like I was saying with the Makabe, where it's the prequel for what's about to happen, right? And the 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 happening is worth watching. No, Mark Wahlberg. It's an amazing uh, kind of this and the Wrestle Kingdom match because I know Josh was umming and ahhing. <laughs> he didn't know. <laughs> which one to choose uh, but they're both like yeah, in, in, yeah they're both <laughs> incredible matches that um why well, they it's hard-hitting nonsense i love it not nonsense you know what i mean <laughs> I, i'm sorry i'm still laughing that you just like randomly threw in a <laughs> happening joke about mark Wahlberg. <laughs> <laughs> No and one then, takes the piss out of that film enough. <laughs> it's nonsense. And, and then and then you just kept going and no sold it like you're a Shibata. <laughs> uh, I'm the Shibata of comedy. <laughs> no, no joke. Like I remember watching that in college and I kinda liked that movie. Like Zoe De Chanel's kinda hot in that movie. It's, it's it's not bad. It's not people man, people hate on uh um on my boy M Knight too much. Like, come on. Don't let De Chanel's eyes blind you. <laughs> I, I do remember uh what was that movie on uh netflix a few years ago bird box oh yeah bird box, oh, yeah. Bird box. Oh, yeah. when bird box came out i was like this is just the happening but a little different <laughs> <laughs> what's anyways, going on it's the happening <laughs> oh shamalana is best <laughs> but uh yeah so with this you know um one of the reasons i picked this was just because i think it's the first truly, really great Goto match in New Japan after his return. I, I, I thought about picking something from before he left, but for the listeners, there's not really much on New Japan World from that period, unfortunately. So this one just kind of made sense. It's a big show. It's a great, great, great match. And re-watching it again, you know, I, like uh, Imp said, I did him and Haw. There's a lot of matches I kind of considered. I even thought about uh, their match from Wrestle Kingdom in 2017. Um, but this one just kind of like, in my opinion, I do think that this is the height of their matches. I think it's the best one they ever did by a small margin. Um, and it, it it's so incredible. Like, I just think that in 2013, like people kind of forget that there was a time where Goto wasn't seen as this foregone conclusion. Like he doesn't have it and he's gone sort of thing. Like 
we, we like to joke and say Goto is like Japanese uh, Dolph Ziggler. Well, you remember Dolph Ziggler kind of was hot in 2013. Well, so was Goto. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this Shibata match kind of proves it. And the crowd was eating this shit up. But not only that, but like they wrestled at such a high pace. The match is not long. I don't know. I think it's 12, 13 minutes. But my God, the the violence that's on display here. I think all three of us picked really good matches. We're going to get to yours, obviously. But we all picked very different stylistic displays of who Shibata was. And when you want to talk about what a lot of people remember Shibata for, the Ishii, the wars, you know, the Nagata wars, the Ishii wars, the Hama war. Well, the Goto wars fit right into this. And this is right up there with any of those. And like, I'm glad that we had such a diverse uh, range. This is, this match blew me away rewatching it again after all these years. What what were your thoughts, Jeremy? Yeah, so this was the first time I watched this match and I absolutely loved it. This is what I you know, I'm all for, you know, your standard kind of filling each other out and lock up kind of matches. Those matches are good, but I love me a match where from right from the bell they're going at it and that's what was what happened here. The bell rang, Goto hits him with a big lariat right from the start, and they're just going at it from there, you know, with the forearm strikes and Obviously, throughout the match, there's a, a bunch of no-selling, lots of, you know, suplex combos and forearm strikes, slap exchanges, and uh, yeah, just it's just great. It's, it's your never-style, strong-style match. These guys are going out there and just brutalizing each other, dropping each other on their heads, slapping each other, kicking each other. And like you mentioned, it's a very high pace. The match, yeah, like you said, it's like 12 minutes, very easy watch. And, yeah, the crowd was so hot for it. Every strike, every big move, the crowd was popping. I mean, these guys had the crowd in the palm of their hands. And, yeah, this was, this was a fun one. I really enjoyed this match. You know, and, and there's so many influences on the style that Shibata brings to the ring. But one, and I don't, I don't think it's a direct uh, influence, but it's something that um, it's definitely there. You know, back in the 80s when Ricky Choshu was um, – you know, coming to prominence, people were really critical about his quote unquote high spurt wrestling because they said he wrestled too quick. You know, he was killing the business, um, you know, too, too many big moves in a short amount of time. And like, I think like in a way Shibata was kind of in, not always, but in, in these types of matches, Shibata was exercising that same kind of philosophy, but on a higher degree, like, these matches are so violent and so high paced. Like, um, and not only that, but you would think with them being like a lot of big spots, a lot of hard strikes that the psychology might get lost in the middle of it, but they don't like they, they're masterpieces. They get sold. All, all the strikes mean something. Everything gets sold at the right time. These guys recover when they need to. Like they, they did. They, these are the kind of matches that define what we kind of think of when we talk about like that never style. Um, it, it's just really great. Like I, I love this match. <laughs> yeah, I think the thing with Shibata, like you mentioned, even though yeah, it's a really fast pace, and to some it might not seem like their psychology, but for the main point of this match, Shibata's going out for two things. He's he's trying to hit the PK. He's trying to get the sleeper in the PK. And he's going to do whatever he can to set those up. And that's kind of the story of the match. Like, he, he's fighting to get that sleeper hole so he can hit the PK and try and get the win here. Uh, and then Goto's obviously trying to get his moves and trying to keep up with Shibata's pace 
to avoid the PK and the sleeper. Uh, so yeah, really loved that about this match. Um, one thing I loved was when they both go down. Um, there was actually two moments in the match. One when they're on the outside, it goes near to a count out. And then another, they're on the inside of the ring and they, uh, you know, Red Shoes gets very close to counting them both out for a 10 count, which would be a double knockout. And obviously the, the match previous to this ended at a draw. So when that happens, the crowd is so like loud and boisterous. And so, the, you know, that storytelling where they're building off of the events of the previous match, you kind of see how that's here. And when they get up, like the crowd is just so overjoyed that these guys are going to keep beating the crap out of each other. It's, it's great. <laughs> and for me, this was the first matchup that once we picked that I watched. And when they were doing that count out and it's just the referee just doing the normal Japanese count of 16, 17, <laughs> 18, <laughs> 19. <laughs> Dude, I oh, love I've that. Just sat there like, yeah, I was just out there like, oh, I'm home. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I love when the announcer, like, that high pitch starts coming in. Hey, <laughs> That's great. Um, and, and here we had another one of those those nasty headbutts I was talking about earlier on where yeah. he just cracked Goto with a headbutt. And you just heard that thing just echo throughout the building i jumped it was like oh oh gosh (laughs) when that happened man i I think about like when um brett used to not want to wrestle rick because rick did chops and he's like bro it's it's not a shoot you don't have to actually hit me like can you imagine like what bret hart thinks about like katsuyori shibata like the moment he sees him actually why are you really headbutting people? Why can't you do the Andre the Giant? Put your hand on their head, rear back, and, and like it's not that serious, bro. Four <laughs> out of ten. There's one thing I would change about Shibata. I would, I would take away the headbutts. Like I don't understand why they had, why they have to be shoot headbutts. Right. You've just reminded me of the Minoru Suzuki Zuki Orange Cassidy match. That's no longer going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> What I want to know is, like, when they're, you know, talking the match out, like, does Shibata say, hey, I'm going to crack you? Or is it a sh- is, is this shoot? Is this a surprise? Like, in the middle of a match, it's like, crack. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I think he says this. I think he's like, all right, kid, we're about to get some color. I don't see a blade. <laughs> where's, where's the blade? I don't see a blade. He's like, my, my head's the blade. <laughs> Oh man! <laughs> but um, ultimately, um, uh, freaking Shibata hits the PK. He gets he locks in the sleeper, hits the PK, gets the win. Um, Dave Meltzer gave this match four and three quarters. Um, I mean, what were you guys' you know final opinions as we move on? It's I said it at the start. It's Goto Shibata. I don't need to hype it up anymore. <laughs> no, anything about it. Uh, yeah, I guess Star Wars. It's weird. I don't. These are the kind of matches where I don't feel like just putting a star rating on it properly sums up my feelings about it. Just because I enjoy this style so much that I I can't unbiasedly kind of give it a proper rating because uh, this this is the style that really got me hooked on New Japan. That I generally settled it. Of, like this is my number one promotion just watching these kinds of matches. Uh, so, watch it. 
<laughs> as long as you're fine with vicious looking headbutts and really smooth transitions for Mushi Hiroshi's into uh, headlocks, <laughs> like, if you're fine with that, <laughs> then yeah, it's this is uh, this is the match for you. And they do it again at Wrestle Kingdom. And it's really close which one I prefer the most. I'm, I'm somebody where the spectacle and atmosphere really adds something. And the crowd in this one are loud enough where um, it's really difficult for me to decide between this one and the Tokyo Dome. It, the crowd are so into it. Yeah, It's like splitting splitting hairs at that point. I agree with you 100%. And it it's totally your tastes. But you could ask me any day of the week and I could give you either answer and it's they're pretty much i mean if you wanted to say they're equal they're literally i I can't think of two matches that are as equal as these two matches like they're just both really great if anyone's done it it should batter again with ishii (laughs) yeah (laughs) and 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 it's interesting that none of us picked an ishii match and i get we're going to talk about him a little bit but like i i think the main reason i i went with a goto match versus one of the ishii matches is because of a, this happened in 2013, so it's like the first really great match he had, and then B, the the relationship that these two men had with one another. Whereas the Ishii matches actually probably do peak higher than the Goto matches. Although I don't know, I really love these Goto matches. I think they're a little underrated in that respect because it's Goto. But uh, yeah, man, I mean, they're just they're so good. Yeah, love this match. I gave it a rating of four and a half stars. Of uh, Really, really awesome match. Definitely go out of your way. Watch this match. It's only like 12, 13 minutes. Falls to the wall. These guys are throwing uh, bows, headbutts, everything at each other. Everything but the kitchen sink. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And and you know what? They say you shouldn't rate things posthumously, but what else can we do but rate it posthumously? I went four and a half as well. And um, looking at cage match, they're at 9.05. So we're... We are accurate star raiders, Jeremy. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So following and 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 Dave gave it four and three quarters. So if they'd given it five more minutes, this guy would have gone the full five. He might. He might. He might have gone six. (laughs) If 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 it had happened in the Tokyo Dome, who knows? So after this match, these guys would have a third matchup this year where they faced off. On July 20th, that match ended in a draw. Then from there, Shibata would go to the 2013 G1 Climax, where he had a record of five wins and four losses with a loss against Hoshi Tanahashi on the final day, which cost him a spot in the finals. And I think here is kind of where that that rivalry with Tanahashi is kind of reignited between these two guys. And and we would see that, you know, we'll get to it in a second, the match that uh, Imp picked. Obviously, and you mentioned it too earlier, Josh, with just Tanahashi's comments in the news, and just it's well known that Tanahashi was not happy with Shibata leaving, and obviously Tanahashi became the star that saved New Japan and took them out of the dark ages and helped catapult the company to where it is today. And you know, that was, I think that's the name of his book. I think the name of his book is Tanahashi, the star who saved New Japan, took him out of the dark ages, and catapulted him <laughs> <at> the start. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, he, he pretty much did that. You know, he was he was the main star out of that that three musketeer group. Obviously, Nakamura was a star as well, but you know, Tanahashi just really helped elevate the promotion. 
And now Shibata is kind of waltzing back into the promotion after Tanahashi had kind of did, did the heavy lifting here. And so that would play into their rivalry going forward. That's how I feel like when we're having guests over and I do all the cleaning and then you show up and everything's <laughs> already done. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to take my full laundry into the room. Like, oh, you want to you wanna clean up now after I already did everything? Like, come on. And how many times does that happen? <laughs> no, nah, I'm just playing. That never happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then moving on from G1, we jump forward to 2014. So Tokyo Dome this year, he's facing Hiroki Goto again. And we talked about this this match and how, yeah, it's pretty much like on the same level. And um, Goto was returning from an injury here. Uh, he, he was sidelined for the past uh, five months. And... This matchup here would kind of culminate the rivalry at this point between Chibata and Goto and lead to them uh, forming a tag team. Um, but like we mentioned, that Wrestle Kingdom 8 match, it's another banger between these guys, another recommended watch. Go out of your way to uh, watch this one as well. Uh, so from here, after that match, they form the tag team and they, they enter the IWGP tag team picture and they defeat the current champ at the time of Doc Gals and Carl Anderson in a non-title match at the uh, 42nd anniversary on March 6th. And even though he was a, kind of an, a tag team at the moment, Shibata was starting to express interest in challenging for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, which was held at, by Okada at the time, but Okada told him he had to earn his house shot in the New Japan Cup. Um, so Shibata said that you know he was bringing back his old finishing move, the octopus hold, to help him win the New Japan Cup. But he would lose to in the second round to Shelton X Benjamin on March 22nd. And then after the New Japan Cup, he would kind of resume the tag team with Goto and the chase for the tag team titles. So we have Invasion Attack 2014. Him and Goto would finally get their title shot from beating Bullet Club at the anniversary show. Um, but they end up losing to Gals and Anderson here. Um, and then from there, we move on to G1 Climax of that year, July 21st to August 8th. He finishes fourth in his block for a record of six wins and four losses. And during the tournament final on August 10th, Shibata and Goto, even though they're, they're a team now, they would end up facing each other again in this tournament, and Shibata would be victorious here. And, uh, within, and after that G1, we, we see the rivalry once again kind of pick back up with Tanahashi, which leads to the match that Imp picked from uh, Destruction in Kobe, Shibata versus Tanahashi. Yeah, and in this entire time from their f- like first G1 meeting all the way to this match the, and everything with Goto in between, this is, uh, this is where they, to me, really got across that feeling of uh, Shibata's trying to win back that respect that he lost for just leaving. And um, uh, Tanahashi, voicing his concerns, obviously, uh, puts that into the like spotlight. But in his performances as well, it's all there. It's all in the ring that he is fighting for respect. And uh, it's matching against Tanahashi at last year's G1 Climax. Like, you really feel it. And uh, But it's Tanahashi that's the one getting the better of him. Because in Tanahashi, staying obviously pays off. And by the time we get to here, they've obviously they fought quite a few times. They've become a lot more even. You're seeing counters to counters, uh, as in the move that uh, Tanahashi won with last time when he goes to 
try it a little bit, he just gets a spinning forearm right in the face. <laughs> <laughs> like a Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it, um, that's like one of the things I love about New Japan. It's just that kind of long uh, long-term storytelling where they do something in a match where there's a consequence to it. The next time is the investor's like, well, you ain't doing that again. And <laughs> yeah. the fastest way of doing that is just with a really hard kick or a really hard forearm or something. This makes you just go, Oh shit. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, by the time you get to that third or fourth match, that means you've got multiple. Oh shit. Moments where he just counters with something. <laughs> Whilst Tanner's is a lot more flashy and stylish. Uh, Shibata's is no-nonsense punch-to-the-face kind of stuff. Hmm. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, and I believe Shibata had actually beaten Tanahashi in that year's G1. Is that correct? Oh, 2014, I want to say yes, because Tanahashi won the year before in the semifinals, uh, the finals for the A block. And if I'm right, the answer is yes, because that was, I think, night 10 or so, because it wasn't the final night. And that's the year that oh, it was... That was um, Nakamura Okada, if I'm right, in the finals of that one. So, but both guys were eliminated. I think that's right. <laughs> I'm wording all over the place because I've got a stalling to see if I can figure it out. Uh, uh, but oh, unless it was a draw, no, it wasn't a draw. If I'm right, that was like one all leading to this third match, and I think we skipped to pay per view. Pay per view is not America. <laughs> we skipped the show. <laughs> and. Um, Whatever that was, all, it's like New Beginning era or, or later than that, Dantaku, one of those from like February to end of spring, they had another match, which isn't on New Japan World. I don't know the result of it either. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, both G1 Climaxes are relevant to this match, at least. So you can find those on uh, New Japan World because G1 Climax has been properly put up. Uh, and you'll see that the counters for the counters, or at least from the start, Shibata can't do his like MMA charging idea because Tanahashi's there to stop him this time. Yeah. Uh, looking back at the record here, Shibata 16 minutes and 16 seconds. He defeated Tanahashi, which I believe was his um, only uh, win after his return in a singles match against Tanahashi. So that was kind of, you know, just a few months before this match. And um, I think you did a really great job there and just kind of, uh, you know, um, sort of going over the the background on on the short rivalry that they had had with one another in the past couple of years it kind of makes me feel like at this point it might be even worth going back and checking out those other matches to kind of get more perspective on an already great match uh or at least that's how i'm feeling about it i don't know about you jeremy definitely yeah anytime you could watch a rivalry and watch all the matches in a series I think it definitely helps enhance the experience of watching whatever match you're seeking out because you're you're getting the backstory, you're seeing the callbacks, you're seeing the story being told over a series of matches over years, months, just depending on whatever the rivalry is. And that's the situation here with Shibata and Tanahashi. And the thing I really love about this match, like you mentioned, Josh, we, we all picked matches that were different styles. Like the Goto match that we reviewed was, you know, that kind of blitz never style. Then here it's more of a main event New Japan style, obviously with Tanahashi. But even though it's that, um, Shibata does kind of push Tanahashi to wrestle his style a little bit. And that's what I love about this match. I love when guys kind of push Tanahashi, quote unquote, out of his comfort zone. And because in most Tanahashi matches, you don't see a lot of no selling. 
you really don't see a lot of big strikes. Every once in a while, he'll, he'll hit a shote, but you really don't see a lot of like big strikes or that that much hatred, depending on who he's going against, or um, a lot of no selling. We saw that here in this match right from the beginning. They kind of start out doing the, the, the amateur wrestling kind of grappling exchange, and they get up in the ropes. And you know, normally, Babyface Tanahashi will give a nice clean break, but here he slaps the crap out of Shibata, and it's on from there. You can. You can cut the tension with a knife and just see the kind of, you know, hate for each other and the story that they're telling here of how annoyed Tanahashi still is about Shibata leaving and how that kind of flows throughout this match. Yeah, Tanahashi told him none of that Anokiism shit. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, we mentioned the comments between uh, Tanahashi, you know, and one of the things that he had mentioned previously was not only was he critical of shibata for leaving the company and his motivations for doing so but he was very critical of his wrestling style uh he thought that there was really no grace to the way he wrestled he didn't think that there was uh a lot of regard for the safety of the competitors and he didn't think that there was a lot of psychology at all um so he thought it was an inferior form of wrestling psychologically and he talked about that in his book, and he said that, and that was one of the things he didn't. They didn't share the same philosophies and views when it came to the art of pro wrestling. And this match is by far the biggest match that these two guys ever had with one another. Uh, obviously, building on the matches that they had previously, building on the real heat that they had with one another, and this had the most build. This had the most anticipation. Um, you know, and last week we talked about the AJ Styles uh, review, and this kind of bleeds into here. This is the point where Tanahashi is looking to get back to the title that AJ Styles has at that point in time. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 2014. Yeah, is it him or is it Okada? I'm I'm like forgetting now because I like for some reason. <laughs> Pretty sure Okada won the G1, so he was. That's champion. right. Yeah. That's right. And Tana, yeah, okay, perfect. So um, this is kind of in that in-between time. Like Tanahashi needs to win this match with Shibata so he can kind of go on and, and uh, you know, win the title. And then you've got Shibata who's fighting for respect, uh, you know, and to prove that he belongs at the top of the card with these guys. Definitely. And, yeah, this was, like you mentioned, it's a big match. You know, he's, he's in there with the ace, and this is his time to shine and show that he can, you know, hang with the main event players. And this matchup, like you guys were mentioning, a lot of great counters, a lot of great strikes in this matchup here. And, again, Shibata, you know, going for the, for the sleeper, trying to get the PK, trying to use a, kind of that MMA background to, you know, work over – uh, Tanahashi's legs and his arms he's trying to lock on different submissions here but Tanahashi kind of comes back with the submission game and is hitting multiple dragon screws throughout the match so he can set up um, you know for the for the clover leaf um, Tanahashi's doing a lot of great suplexes here just an overall really fun matchup here because um, I was crazy and watched all the Tanahashi Shibata matches one after the other in one day this Sunday don't do that <laughs> <laughs> it's they're really good matches, but if you watch them one after the other without a break, yeah, you do kind of get a bit sick of it by the end. But uh, one consistent was yeah, Shibata's running drop kick into the corner. Mm. Every single match it is such an amazing drop kick. 
just the stall he gets in the air before he let's extend his legs into them. It's like every time he gets a reaction out of me. And that's somebody who watched four Shibata Tanahashi matches in one sitting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's one of those things, you know, everyone likes to point out that Kenta innovated it. And there's no denying that Kenta at one point in time was one of the best wrestlers in the world. And maybe even a wrestler of the decade candidate for the 2010s. But with that being said, he might have invented the move, but Shibata perfected the move. And I don't, I've never seen anyone hit it as cleanly, consistently as he does. Uh, you're absolutely right in that. And, I, and while, we were, while you guys were talking, I looked it up. AJ Styles was the champion. Tanahashi was getting ready to challenge at King Pro Wrestling. So this was kind of that interim period. But uh, this match was one that, um, like Jeremy was kind of hitting on, was based entirely in that style of it being like, the house main event style of new Japan at the time. And so with it, there's the feeling out process. There's the big fight feel and then the ebbs and the flows. But, uh, you know, some of it probably is lost. If you haven't, this probably is a match where, uh, you, you enjoy it more or gain more perspective by seeing the previous matches that they've had. But, because, but at the same time, you don't have to to enjoy it, and that's the hallmark of a great match. And you can kind of see how there's so many um, moments that you are used to seeing in a Tanahashi or Shibata match where these guys have sort of scouted one another, and like Imp was saying, they cut one another off, and the crowd kind of knows that, and they buy into it each and every time. And so um, both guys are kind of lulled into fighting each other's style. In the one hand, you have Tanahashi who is doing more strikes and going toe-to-toe more so than, than he's used to. But on the flip side, you have Shibata, who's wrestling at the slower pace and the longer match time to, to where like Tanahashi sort of dragging him into deep waters and Shibata doesn't know it. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I kind of gathered from it. And, um, the, this, and then the heat, the, the heat and the hatred is very, very palpable in this match. And the crowd really elevates the match as well. Yeah, I love the um, the, the near count-out spot towards the beginning where they're just both exchanging strikes up until the count of 19 and then get back in the ring and immediately continue to exchange strikes. That's a that's a Shibata uh, hallmark because we saw that a few weeks ago in the recommended match of the week when him and Nagata were in the G1 in 2014. Yeah. So uh, any final thoughts up about this match? Um, for me, it's the the reason I picked it really is because it's such a kind of perfect match to watch in terms of his arc of respect being earned as he came back into New Japan, and this is rivalry with Tanahashi symbol. Uh, that is that story of him re-earning that respect, and oh, it's where Dean Ambrose Seth Rollins should have gone with Dean Ambrose not trusting Seth Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, then we got what we got. Oh. <laughs> anyway, shut up, Matt. <laughs> so the, uh, so um, yeah, I thought that was just like a fantastic kind of thing, and it leads into um, Goto and Shibata forming that tag team as well, and that's just kind of like the final part of his respect. I felt like they hit that respect arc ended with Goto and him just together with their arms folded in the middle of that ring. We'll get to that in a second. Um, <laughs> For me, that's where that arc kind of ended. And then he was able to jump up to uh, the, I guess we saw him then jump up to the heavyweight scenes uh, shorter, uh, short afterwards. And this match for me is 
yeah, perfect example of what that respect arc kind of felt like with him earning that respect. Because again, you see it in the ring, and that is mostly why I chose this match. Yeah, all, all throughout this match, what really stuck out to me is you know obviously Shibata's finisher at this point it's the PK, and he's trying so hard to just get Tanahashi in a position where he can hit him with that. And so he's breaking him down all throughout the match with strikes and knees and backhands and, you know, headbutts, everything. And um, Tanahashi is many times getting outmaneuvered by Shibata in this match. So what he does, and it's the thing that Tanahashi always does, is he goes to Old Faithful and he just starts destroying his knees with dragon screws. Yep. <laughs> and from a, from a psychology standpoint, it makes so much sense. If you have a man who his finishing move is to run at you and kick you, <laughs> then why not take his <laughs> legs away from him? <laughs> and, um, you know, even still, like, Shibata, you know, hits him with the drop kicks. He tries to go for GTSs. You know, he tries to go for PKs. But uh, I have to believe that the work that Tanahashi does in this match is really kind of the deciding factor there. Um, there was one point where Tanahashi even hit uh, Shibata with a corner drop kick, which was mm, yeah. pretty pretty awesome. Um, but at the end there, like he hits the high fly flow twice and he puts this guy away. And, you know, you would think all right, he put another jabron down. It's time to play some air guitar. It's time to cut a promo on AJ Styles. Nah, like instead, you get the post-match where, you know, Shibata stands up and they look at each other and they shake one another's hands and the crowd goes crazy. And like, that doesn't sound like much, but Shibata is the kind of guy who like, when when he lost matches, he disappeared. When he won matches, he usually just disappeared. He didn't say much. On promos when he did it mattered and when he stayed in the ring post-match it mattered because he didn't generally do that and so this uh post-match really actually again with the whole story behind it and everything that imp just mentioned there it's very meaningful and it was like where him and tanahashi kind of you know proved their display of respect for one another and that like you know we're not best friends at this point but like I respect you, and that kind of squashes it, and they kind of go their separate ways. And um, I'm not going to say that this match made Shibata, but it was sort of like a, a key indication that the company was starting to have more faith in him as a performer, um, and that they were kind of putting to rest some of the ghosts of the past of him, you know, his transgressions. Right. Yeah, I mean, overall, it's a really great matchup here, and you know, kind of a conclusion of just like that great, you know, respect storyline that they had going right there. I respect you, Booker, man. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on from this match, um, Shibata would now enter in a rivalry with Shinsuke Nakamura, and he would become the number one contender for the IWGP Intercontinental Championship. And it was announced that Shibata would be working um, October to November, the Road of Power Struggle Tour, and this would be his first Full tour of New Japan since his return So this whole time he's been working as a freelancer And he's not under contract So this is kind of a big deal He's working a full tour here And getting more ingrained back into New Japan I think he was working the Don Callis tour Is what they call it big, The big matches, the big shows only The, 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 the big shows only <laughs> <laughs> He was on that Young Bucks deal Yeah <laughs> And um so he would receive his IC title shot on November 8th at Power Struggle. 
but he would lose to Nakamura. Nakamura retains there. Then later on in the month, we go to the World Tag League where him and Goto are teaming up again. And they open up with a three-match losing streak, but would eventually come back and win their four remaining matches. You know, typical kind of New Japan storytelling where they the winners kind of the underdog in the tournament. And so they come back, they win the block, and advance to the finals. And they would meet Doc Gals and Carl Anderson in the finals on December 7th. For the World Tag League Championships and defeat those guys, which would then set up a title match in the beginning of the year 2015 at Wrestle Kingdom 9, where we have uh, Shibata and Goto defeating Carl Anderson and Gallows to become the new IWGP Tag Team Champions. Um, and then from there, their their tag title reign would end pretty quickly in their first defense on February 11th at New Beginning in Osaka. They were defeated by Anderson and Gallo. So here we kind of see the problems that we always see with the tag division where you kind of just have two main teams and they're kind of playing hot potato with the belts and kind of they're the only two people who are like wrestling each other. Yeah. And, and um, as problematic as that is, there are some important notes here. Uh, one, just, you know, the story arc, you know, obviously like him and Goto had almost a year long feud the first time that they feuded with one another. Then they become a tag team and they've been questing for this title for a year. They finally obtain it. And so not only have they kind of succeeded in what they set out to do the prior year, starting with like what the world tag league in 2014 or I'm sorry, in 2013, but this is the first actual title belt that Shibata has held at all in new Japan ever. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of significant in that, in that sense as well. Yeah, really a kind of important moment there in kind of the, the story and arc of uh, Shibata. And they, in a way, NIJ'd it a bit where you think, oh, this is the time for Evil Sonata to kind of... Oh, I think oh, it's like with the three-way belts where they had Evil Sonata and Bushi with it. It's like, oh, shit, right, NIJ are going to rule this year. This is their year. And, like, next night on New Year's Dash, bloody Taguchi's walking out with it. <laughs> 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 So uh, and, and, and I think the thing here too is that this team wasn't one that they had big plans for as opposed to the guys as individuals. And I think that's kind of the big difference here um, is they won the belts, but I don't think they had plans to keep them on as, uh, you know, Mayu Tag was cool, but they did what they had to do. I don't think that basically they had long-term plans for Shibata and Goto, but more Shibata, which is great. And so after they lose the titles, they end up facing each other in March in the second round of the 2015 New Japan Cup. This time, Goto is victorious. Then on April 5th, Shibata would get back into a rivalry with Sakuraba after Sakuraba submitted Shibata in a tag match during Evasion Attack 2015. And this built to the July 5th Dominion match between these guys and Osaka Joe Hall where Shibata was victorious. Yeah, I actually just rewatched this match earlier today before we did the show, and um, I'm a lifelong Sakuraba fan. It's one of my favorite fighters of all time. And, you know, Sakuraba was not only a tag team partner to uh, um, Shibata, but he also was a trainer to him and a mentor. And, you know, they had to disband their uh, tag team years prior to this because of an injury to Sakuraba. And when Sakuraba came back, he joined chaos, which, 
you know, uh, many people don't know it now, but like Chaos was a heel stable and Shibata was opposed to them. So it was kind of a slap in the face. So there, there was heat with these two guys when that sort of <laughs> happened at the time. And um, obviously they fought one another in real life and Sakuraba whooped that ass. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, But the interesting thing here with this match, and it's a really good match. If you haven't seen it, I'd recommend it. Um, the thing, though, is that Sakuraba is old, man, and as adept of a catch wrestler as he is and as smooth as he is on the ground, there's so many elements and aspects of pro wrestling. And and Sakuraba, even though people know him for, from MMA, he is a pro wrestler. He came up you know, in the UWFI and in Kingdoms and all these different companies. I mean, like before he was a fighter, he was a pro wrestler. Um, you know, he trained under Takata, <laughs> but, um, there's so many things he just couldn't do at this point because of how old he was. And the match is great because Shibata is able to go in there and kind of carry him and accentuate his positives and hide his weaknesses. And it's short. It's not any longer than it needs to be. And then at the end of it, like he PKs a bitch and puts him away for the one, two, three. And it's great. <laughs> like, um, as, as awesome as Shibata is at, um, wrestle kingdoms, he really always showed up every year at dominion. Like, and this is just another great match to his dominion catalog. And, uh, you know, um, he kind of surpassed his mentor at that point, which was a, a big deal. So is he, uh, he's Mr. Dominion. He might be, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I think who, who's, who's Mr. SummerSlam. Is it Brett or is it Cena? Um, I want to say Brett, but <laughs> I don't think Cena ever called himself Mr. SummerSlam, but I'm sure if you look at his like record, his SummerSlam, you look at his SummerSlam record, you look at his match. Uh, he Cena has a much better performance track record at SummerSlam than he does at WrestleMania. Yeah. So after this Dominion match, uh, Shibata goes to the 2015 G1 from July 20th to August 14th, and. Um, here he had a he was kind of in the middle of his block for a record of four wins and five losses, and then from that G one, um, kind of fast forwarding to the beginning of 2016, Wrestle Kingdom 10, and Shibata would be going up against Tomohiro Ishii, and Ishii was another one of his um, big rivals here in this run of New Japan. They ended up, they had a, a five star match in the. Um, 2013 G1, which was just an absolute banger, and from there that that was kind of like the one of the, the initial matches in this kind of rivalry, and we would see the the rivalry re- renewed here at Wrestle Kingdom 10 for the Never Openweight Championship, and Chibata would win his first singles title in New Japan by defeating Ishii here. Here we go, latter. <laughs> 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 Um, um, this is, this is, it's one of those well, as soon as this happened it was just like oh my for me um, it was the first time for Wrestle Kingdom match where like the next day I was like, there again watching it again because you know, I just found it so incredible and for, for me it's, it's unfortunately it's one of those matches where because there is a spot in the middle where it's just headbutt 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 and each one seemingly getting more and more vicious and it's like well who's going to stop headbutting the other person I think Ishii does that selling where he kind of just stumbles backwards on his potato legs and just hits the rope <laughs> <laughs> and bounces forward. And 
Oh, it's, for me, this this was the first match where I really um, got into the thing where they cross their legs in the middle of the ring and start. Um, yeah, that kind of like go on hit me then. And this is where that spot got over. And suddenly, you're seeing it everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> it was... and you know it's funny. Um, for me, it's funny that you mentioned Rich because I actually called Rich after this uh, after this Wrestle Kingdom, and I was like. Yo, I'm not a fan of. I was like, I love that match, but I'm not a fan of this spot where these two dudes are literally just sitting down and asking each other to hit one another. I was like, it's not very realistic. Like, I hate this. This is stupid. But like, and Rich was like, I love it. (laughs) 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 But but you know, as time has kind of gone on, you're right. It's something that's been super emulated a lot, and then it's something that I've kind of. After listening, after listening to some of the wrestlers describe their reasoning behind why they've done this in, in their matches, I can kind of buy into it more. But at the time, it just didn't make sense to me. But um, yeah, the, the matches with Ishii are—I don't think he ever had a better opponent, bell to bell, in New Japan than Tomohiro Ishii. And it is kind of a shame that none of us picked one of his matches. The the deal though with Ishii is that their feuds were completely based on professional animosity. I don't like you. You don't like me. I'm a bad motherfucker. You are too. Let's let's do it. And that's all there was to it. Like they just wanted to run it because they're the two baddest dudes in the company, and they never got the respect that the top stars were getting. So we're gonna fight for this third belt and make it mean something. And uh. Their matches are just incredible. Like they never had a bad. There's not a bad Ishii uh, Shibata match. Like they're just so great. Uh, this one is the famous one, but um, there's a genuine kind of argument, I guess, in the Jap- in the New Japan community of if is this one the best one, or is their match at New Beginning even better? <laughs> and it seems to change from fan to fan. <laughs> just which one? I've always. I heard that the new beginning match is even is superior and i think that i was in that camp but i'll tell you i think their g1 match in 2013 is their best match by far oh, this, yeah, yes. like the eight minute just mental <laughs> just, i I, re- yeah. I watched that g1 match this weekend along with the matches that we were reviewing them oh man a masterpiece it's another one seriously for shibata matches i know a lot of people were asking for recommendations go to shibata's cage match and uh organize it by you know, the cage match ratings, I just watch all the ones that are like in that nine, eight range. And there's all great, great stuff, especially all his, yeah. his series with Ishii. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the big thing here, again, we pointed out January 4th, Tokyo Dome 2016, they put their first ever singles title on Shibata. Big deal. Really, really big deal. And that's when we kind of knew. We're like, dude, this guy's been here for four years. This is the first time that it feels like they're going with him. And people who felt like that were right because they were. So from there... And he really cemented the kind of never title and kind of what that meant in the company at that time. Yeah, I guess he, Goto, Ishii... Maccabee was there for a, t- for a sprinkle. <laughs> but. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. Today, in preparation of the show, I was uh, kind of checking out what they have in New Japan World. There are a slew of documentaries on um, 
on there. Um, there's actually two that are in complete Japanese, so I couldn't watch them. I wish that they would go subtitle those because I would I would go back and rewatch all those. There's so many documentaries in the last three or four years that we can't watch, and that kind of sucks. <laughs> um, but there was one that was an interview prior to the match it, it's from the wonderland series and it's an interview prior to the match with okada so it's right before his accident and they're talking to him about his never run and he was like you know ultimately it's the third belt right you've got the iwgp you've got the ic title then you've got the never title and the never title is nowhere near the iwgp title like it's just not but i came out here in 2014 and tried to challenge okada and okada said you got to earn it the right way and he also pointed out, he's like, that dude didn't earn his title shot the right way. He just came out and asked for a title shot after excursion and got it. <laughs> he's like, he was like, but um, he's like, here we are three years later and I, I won the New Japan Cup and I did it the right way. He's like, but he's like, I knew the Never title wasn't the be- the best title, but since they weren't going to give me an IWGP title shot, I wanted to make this title what I remember the IWGP title being in the 90s, a title where the baddest guy in the company defends it against all comers, no matter who they are, what they represent. Like, if you want a shot, come get some. And that's what he did. Like, and he is kind of the guy. Yeah, I do understand that, like, guys like Masato Tanaka and Makabe were there first. But, like, when you think of that belt, there's, like, two guys you think of. It's either him or Ishii. And, like, to me, I really think more of Shibata personally. Because, like, for me, um, Yujiro Takahashi was champion when I started watching. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, immediately, you're just like, right, well, that belt doesn't really matter then. <laughs> so that's the European title. And that his main rival is this Naito guy who's getting half booed out of Venus. Like, it doesn't really feel <laughs> like that big of a deal. <laughs> Yeah, the, the Never title will definitely evolve to kind of being one of these titles that produces, you know, a ton of memorable matches and essentially just become, has become like a strong style open weight championship is pretty much what it is. And you got the big beefy boys going in there, throwing lariats, throwing suplexes, throwing headbutts. It's good stuff. Big boys do big boy wrestling. <laughs> so, yeah, and. And and I think this is the title that kind of defined his role in New Japan. And this is my favorite era of Shibata's run. This era from 2016 until his accident, because I think that this is when he was at his best personally. Yeah, this was a great streak here. If you look at his opponents and who he was wrestling and this never title run was some really great stuff. And so after winning the title, he would, Defend it against Ishii in a rematch at New Beginning in Osaka. In another great matchup. Then from there, um, it was announced on March 3rd that Shibata had signed a one-year deal with the promotion, ending his 11-year run as a freelancer. So once again, another big deal. Wins a tag title. Wins a never title. Now, you know, full-time, doing a full tour. Now he's signing a full-time contract. And it was a big deal because, you know, we always hear about New Japan guys, a lot of them, a lot of guys you might be surprised are still freelancers. Not everybody has a contract, and only certain people are. You know, they give these one-year deals that they started doing, and in previous, in recent years, they've been starting to do two or three years deals. But yeah, um, Shibata is one of these guys that they give these one-year deals to. That obviously they have plans for him, and they want to lock him down. 
So he gets his uh, one-year deal here. And so moving forward, he would enter in this rivalry with the New Japan dads, Kojima, Tenzan, and Nagata. And very similar to... And, and uh, Nakanishi. <laughs> oh, yeah, Nakanishi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but very similar to the Tanahashi thing, it, it, it's, you know, these New Japan dads, they're kind of were in Tanahashi's camp where they're kind of frustrated with Shibata leaving the promotion and, you know, him, Nakamura, and Tanahashi are supposed to be the guys that, you know, preceded the third generation, preceded the um, the generation before them, the musketeers before them. And, you know, during the Dark Ages, the New Japan dads were the ones that were kind of keeping the promotion somewhat at a float. And once again, you know, Shibata kind of comes back in and is kind of, you know, taking the glory of what guys like Tanahashi and these New Japan dads were doing during that end of the dark period leading into, you know, New Japan actually being profitable and being a very successful business. So he's getting he's running it with these New Japan veterans here. Oh, go ahead, Em. Oh, I was I I was just reading. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> uh, so I I personally I love this feud. Um, I love what it kind of represents because y- yeah, you're absolutely right, Jeremy. Um, you know, part of it was that. When com- when the business was down, these are the guys who were at top. You know, Nagata was chiefly probably the ace of the company at that period of time. And um, you know, when um, when freaking Shibata left, it was sort of like he should have been part of that next generation, but he kind of wasn't. And so he's here now, and and this is the generation that he never took the baton from. This is the generation that he kind of turned his back on. And, um, they're in this big feud and he, he's on top now. And they're like trying to kind of teach him respect and they're tr- trying to kind of put him in his place. And he, on the, on the, uh, other hand is trying to kind of exercise them from his past because they represent his failure and everything that was wrong with what he did. And he's kind of trying to put them out to pasture at the same time. He's doing the, I'm sorry, I love you, <laughs> go to sleep. Um, and I think in the buildup to this uh, to this feud, they were doing multi-man matches and he fucked up Nakanishi. So, like, you know, all these guys end up getting towel shots, but Nakanishi, because he was the first sacrificial lamb. <laughs> and then and then it led to, you know, him having title shots, uh, title defenses against Tenzan as well as Kojima, and him putting down both members of Tenkoji. And it wasn't until Nagata had to rise the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> and uh, teach this young whippersnapper a thing or two and tell him, like, yo, like, we can still go. like, And um, I love every match between um, Nagata and Shibata. Like, they just have bangers every single time. And these are some of the most meaningful because the story behind it and the stakes that were at hand, because, you know, what better way to like put this guy in his place, but then to take the thing that eluded him his whole career, a title and they take it from him and say like, yo, not only did you not exercise us, but you can't even be, you can't even hold on to the belt that you have. Like, it's really great. Yeah. Uh, Nagata is, one of those guys who just oozes respect. Mm, yeah. And um, that, that really lends itself to the, the, to that story that Josh was talking about. 
And it was it, for me, it was really interesting this year watching people react to Nagata, who see him as just one of the dads. And I think during the G1, he had a little run, I want to say Ishii, where Ishii was on the other team. And people were just like, oh shit, this Nagata guy can go. And obviously. Yeah. I've <laughs> <laughs> just sat there like, yeah, is that not known? <laughs> like, uh, uh, I guess I've got some matches to share with you then. Well, most people were like, Yuji Nagata from WCW. From WCW. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, he was he was raw in WCW. Yeah, he was. He's got that. Um, oh, he's got the Dragon Ball Z kind of like sh- shield over him. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the rivalry with the New Japan dads and Nagata is awesome. So, like you mentioned, Josh, he um, defends the title against Nagata and loses at. Wrestling Dantaku that year, but then he would regain the title back from Nagata on June nineteenth at Dominion. So kind of wrapping up that story there, bro. And- Dominion, Dominion, Shibata doesn't miss, <laughs> <laughs> Mister Dominion. And then from there, he would defend the title against uh, Hanma at July third. And Hanma's another guy he's kind of had like a, a mini rivalry with and. These guys had some great matches. I I, I watched the um, kind of the you know the well known Hanma match along with these matches and man, some great stuff. And I know a lot of people yeah. are like Hanma, really? Yes. Before yes. the yes. injury, <laughs> this man Hanma was out here killing it. Every old Hanma match I watch, it's like amazing. If if you if you're a New Japan fan and you only came in. After say Wrestle Kingdom twelve, that's that's when Jericho and Omega fought, right? Yes. Then you don't know about Hama probably, unless you've just heard. But if you were around when Hama Mania was running wild, <laughs> you know. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember him being in like just a six-person tag at Wrestle Kingdom, and it's just this this feeling of I was like, why is he there? He's so popular. He's New Japan's Daniel Bryan. Why would they push him? <laughs> he was, He yeah. literally felt like New Japan's Daniel yeah. Bryan. That's what people were yeah. calling him at the time. It was crazy. <laughs> but he was just like he just talked like gravel through a didgeridoo. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I just love. Oh. Yeah, Hanma's you know a deathmatch guy. I mean, you know, a lot of people know this, but he's credited as the innovator of the light tube spot. Like he's the first guy that. Not everyone agrees, but it's widely accepted. He's the first guy to ever do it. And if he's not the first, he's the first one to popularize it. I mean, like, yeah, he was in Big Japan, like, doing death matches for years before he came to New Japan. Then he found a second life as this, like, lovable underdog <laughs> guy who, like, was a just incredible in the ring, but, like, could not get the job done. <laughs> he couldn't win matches. Yeah. It was awesome. I- for me, my, my the thing that really won me over was I forgot what the doll is it like Kakeshi doll? I don't know if that's the right word. Yeah, Kakeshi. but it's the it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kakeshi. Where he just kind of just stoically and then just goes, <laughs> <laughs> and he never hit it. That was my favorite thing during the G one. Like there's a wrestler over here in the UK who's uh, recently retired, uh, Martin Kirby, and he had a move called the uh, Zoidberg elbow, where he just get up on the ropes and go mer, 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 like Doctor Zoidberg from Futurama, and then he would jump onto his opponent. And he'd never hit it. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that moment he does, <laughs> like, oh my word, whenever Helmer hit that Kakeshi doll, uh, the, especially the one off the top rope, 
Uh, the crowd is with him for the climb. They're with him for this really slow fall. And just the fact that he kind of just lands like a log. <laughs> on his opponent. And, and, and here, here's the funny thing about the Kokeshi. It's like he goes through all that trouble to possibly mm. hit it, misses it most of the time. And mm. then even when he does hit it, if you're a lower <laughs> card guy, he can put you away. But if you're an upper card guy, they're still going to kick out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but was, because, was, he, because it's so rare for him to hit it, you believe that he might be able to beat yeah. a top guy. He should have taken. He should have taken like a training class with Toriano and learned how to like roll up a bitch or something like. Right. Because <laughs> Yano can. Because I think Yano's beat like everybody and like Hama beat like nobody. <laughs> I was the most over guy. <laughs> it was incredible. Yeah, he definitely uh, yeah. yeah needed a new strategy there. <laughs> so after the Hanma match, there he goes on to so you know Ring of Honor's or excuse me New Japan is working with Rev Pro, and it's kind of where we're seeing like the Rev Pro partnership really blossom here. And so Shibata goes to Rev Pro at the Summer Slizzler, Sizzler event in 2016 on July 10th, where he challenges Zack Saber Jr. for the British Heavyweight Championship, but would fail to defeat Saber on that night. Then from there, he comes back to Japan for the 2016 G1 Climax, where he finished with a record of five wins and four losses, and he failed to advance to the finals due to losing to Evil on the final day. So before we move on, I think now that we're here, it's interesting. A lot of people listening have probably noticed we've touched on three or four G1s at this point. We haven't really discussed any of them, and obviously if we went in depth, there'd be too much to discuss, but... Part of the reason I think we're not really discussing is kind of this. Shibata pretty much, this was his final G1, and he pretty much had the same booking year after year after year. He would start extremely hot. He would win all of his matches back to back to back. He'd have big wins over big names, and you kind of were like, holy crap, this guy looks like he's going to go all the way. And then he'd face a big name, someone that was above his pay grade, someone that was like outside of his skill set, he'd lose. And then that would start a trajectory of him being very inconsistent and losing the majority of the, the matches that were left for him. And that was kind of the same booking every single year. And like every year we'd watch the G1 and we'd be people that liked Shabbat would be like, I think he's, I think this is his year. Like, I think <laughs> this is his year. <laughs> and then the same stuff would happen. Um, the only big difference with this year that was different than the other years was that in 2016, they had introduced uh, Katsuhiko Nakajima and Goshi Ozaki, and he was in the same block as Nakajima. And those two guys wanted to kill each other. And then they were on the undercard nights, him and the uh, third generation dads, he actually formed a bond with the third generation dads was kind of seen as almost the leader of them during this feud. And he became the defender of New Japan against the outside invaders from Noah. And they had some of the craziest 10-man tags of the year. I mean, they were freaking insane. And um, But yeah, I mean, Shibata in the G1 was always like the guy that you could anticipate to have classics and bangers and, you know near five-star matches, but he's he was never going to win that thing. I think I'd say that because um, like Nakajima now in Noah, he is, has... Uh, he, he's found himself 
at that yeah. in, that right now. And it's kind of I remember when I first saw him, I was like, oh, he's, he's got potential. But his stuff with Shibata was when it clicked for me. It's like I could see what they saw in him in yeah. that moment. And uh, yeah, you're totally right with just the that transition to him becoming that de- the, the de facto leader. Like that really um, kind of cemented the fact of how far he'd come to be at that point. Yeah, and we're going to talk about Kenta here in the near future. But, you know, when Kenta was in the G1 this past year, you think about the way he was booked. It was literally Kenta got Shibata's booking. He went undefeated (laughs) for like five or six days. And then when he went face to face with Okada, he got beat. And on the way there, he beat like Tanahashi, some other big names. And then after he got beat by Okada, he kind of fell apart and they literally gave and his match, his wrestling style, his demeanor. It was all Shibata. Plus he was kind of representing Shibata who like introduced him at Dominion. So I just found I didn't even think of that until today. I realized I was like, Oh my God, they did. They did with Kenta what they would probably have done with Shibata still to this day. Who knows? Hmm. I think we brought up earlier people who kind of have that aura that Shibata had and Kenta might be the closest in modern day out of the people that Shibata obviously like didn't face in New Japan and have a big rivalry with. But I might just be saying that because he does the drop kick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But he's got that like no nonsense, I will kick the crap out of you uh, all the time. But obviously the body cup thing makes him feel so massively different. But uh, yeah, at least we still got that awesome drop kick still being seen in New Japan today. (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's definitely not, you know, 0506 Kenta, uh, you know, full prime. And I think he's kind of using that the Bullet Club kind of to his advantage to kind of maybe cover up some weak spots that he might have. Obviously, you know, he's been through a lot of wars over the years, and so he's obviously not in his prime. But, yeah, you know, when he first came in, he did kind of have that, you know, obviously Shibata brings him in, and he does have that kind of similar kind of demeanor, like I'm here to you know, be, you know, quote unquote, the wrestler and, you know, beat the crap out of all these New Japan guys and show why I'm truly the best Japanese wrestler ever. And so from there with Shibata, so we talked about his G1 and he loses to Eve on the final day. So after the G1, he goes over to New Japan's other partner here in the States, Ring of Honor, and he would make his Ring of Honor debut on August 19th at Death Before Dishonor, where he defeats the last real man, Silas Young. And then following that is where he would enter into a rivalry with Red Dragon, Bobby Fish, and Kyle O'Reilly. At the time, Bobby Fish was the Ring of Honor World TV Championship. Shibata would challenge for that belt, but would lose to Bobby Fish, which got Bobby Fish a never open weight title match on September 17th at Destruction in Tokyo. And Shibata successfully defends the never open weight title against Bobby Fish. And during the Ring of Honor run, Kyle O'Reilly gets a referee stoppage over Shibata, which then sets up this King of Pro Wrestling match for Shibata taking on Bobby Fish's tag team partner, Kyle O'Reilly, which is the match that I selected for us to watch and review. Yes, I I was so glad that you picked this match um, just because I don't think it's enough love and... I love this match, and I was so excited once you named it. Yeah, and like we talked about, there are so many great Shibata matches to pick. 
And as I was looking through it, like the Kyle O'Reilly one just kind of caught me off guard because I was like, wait a minute, like these guys wrestled in New Japan, like Jabal's a heavyweight now and Kyle O'Reilly's a, a junior. And I didn't realize that Jabal was a never openweight champion at the time. And they were actually, you know, he was using that openweight rule to actually face some juniors. And so I love Kyle O'Reilly. Kyle O'Reilly is one of my favorite wrestlers. Um, that kind of came up through this, you know, indie period and in Ring of Honor. Love the Red Dragon tag team. Love Kyle as a singles. And I really want to see, you know, kind of how he matched up with Chibata because Kyle also has that kind of MMA um, background. He incorporates a lot of, you know, submissions and strikes um, into his matches and kind of has sort of that MMA kind of shoot style. And so I definitely want to see how these two guys would match up. So what did you guys think about this match? For me, uh, this is where my only hot take in wrestling exists. And it's really, really mild. And that probably tells you about how much I'm just somebody who just jollyly goes along enjoying wrestling without any hot takes. But my only one is I find Bobby Fish as a singles wrestler mildly boring. Mm. I don't know why. His style just doesn't do it for me. But Kyle O'Reilly really does. (laughs) And... uh, it's if I'm right, it's not long after this he has his Ring of Honor World Championship run, and like here I've got my timelines right here he really proved himself, and that you could really see the potential this guy has. Like in undisputed era, he's really only been a tag team guy. You've not really seen him as a singles in WWE, uh, but in Ring of Honor you got to see it, and in New Japan this this match is the match where if you're looking at the potentials of that undisputed era group. This is the match where I just show this to anybody who's just like, oh, he's just a tag team guy. Like, no, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> what is Magic against Shibata? He really is an incredible singles wrestler. Um, and for me, the thing that I love most about this match is it's Kyle O'Reilly versus Shibata. And it, it feel like it's, you, this is a match which should be easy for Shibata, where it's a junior challenging him for the title. But... By the end of the match, the crowd are going absolutely crazy. Like, you'd think it was Goto. <laughs> <He's in there>. <laughs> <laughs> He's going crazy. Uh, you know, Kyle O'Reilly, this is, this is the match that, um, in my eyes, kind of made him. Like, he really, really uh, made a name for himself in this match by stepping up like he was a heavyweight. Yeah, and he put on a lot of muscle yeah. for this match, and the yeah, commentators kind of pointed that out. He just he put on a lot of muscle mass for this match and really was trying to push to that heavyweight level here. Yeah, I there's quite a few things I like about this match. Um, obviously, I'm a big fan of uh, Kyle O'Reilly. Um, I would say I don't totally agree with your take there, uh, M, because I, I actually like Bobby Fish as a singles guy. Um, maybe not in 2020, (laughs) 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 but, um, you know, five years ago, I thought he was very good. I, I, I mean, I think we all know who the more talented two of the duo is by far. Um, but with that being said, there's like, like I was talking about, there's quite a few things I like about this match. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about the stylistic, uh, input of how we kind of chose these different matches, this is definitely the most MMA centric of the three matches, you know, and um, I'm really glad that we kind of got to put that on display because again, totally different pace, totally different tone from the other matches that we selected here. And you kind of see Shibata's grappling ability 
and you see Shibata's storytelling ability and, um, you know, put in there with the right guy who can do it in Kyle Riley. Not only that, they built the matchup. They actually built the whole feud between these four guys really well because you had him, um, you had Bobby Fish beating Shibata in Ring of Honor uh, when he was defending the ROH title and then losing his title shot. And it kind of made sense because, again, he was a junior challenging the never champion who's an open weight title. So it all kind of fits into, into place. And then, uh, at field of honor. And, um, when I watched this match, I actually listened to the English commentary and I think that, uh, Kevin Kelly and, um, Steve Carino, Steve, Steve Carino really hit their stride here because they were doing such a great job at, at kind of laying out the story. And they mentioned how Kyle Riley won the match via Dr. Stoppage. And he put, um, Shibata and Omoplata, which is a, you know, it's a, it's basically a shoulder crank. Um, it, it it's, are you guys familiar? You guys know what Omoplata is, right? I do. Yeah. Okay. No. Cool. So, <laughs> no. Okay. So it, it's you know you know what the yes lock is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So so in jujitsu, if you had a guy in the yes lock, instead of pulling on their face, you would actually push the arm forward so that their shoulder is twisted. Mm. That's an omoplata, and he he had Shibata and omoplata to the point where the referee had to stop the fight because he wasn't going to get out, and his arm was going to break if he didn't, you know, stop the fight, which is a very realistic MMA type of booking. And that was kind of great because when they went into this match, Shibata comes in all taped up, his legs taped up, his bad shoulders taped up. They're playing off of the loss at Field of Honor. Like it was just really great. Yeah, and throughout the match, Kyle's working over that shoulder. He's working over the leg and really trying to break um, Shibata down so he can, he can lock in some submissions, maybe try and get another stoppage or get Shibata to, to tap out. And I also loved, uh, you know, we, we saw this in the, the best Super Junior run for the Kyle O'Reilly match we watched with, with Bobby Fish as the coach in, in the second there. Bobby Fish is coaching uh, Kyle throughout the match, and I love that. There's one point where they're exchanging strikes, and he's like, you need combinations, Kyle. You need combinations. Yeah. <laughs> Not just one strike. Come on. <laughs> yeah, and it was like, how is he going to get off combinations? These guys, like, you know, they're, they're at that point in a, in a wrestling match where they're trading, boo, yay, boo, yay. <laughs> and, like, Bobby's like, come on, Kyle, combos. <laughs> <laughs> you got to move, Kyle. You got to move. <laughs> and one thing I liked is the um, the commentary team they they brought up. They're like, you know, back in the seventies, the Andersons, Ric Flair, guys like that. You know, you'd pick a body part and you'd work it. They're like, but these hybrid wrestlers nowadays they look for openings, and so they move, they transition body part to body part, which is exactly what you would do in a real MMA fight, as opposed to working a body part. Like, I'm going to hit you in your shoulder until you give up like no you're gonna look for the opening so you can end the match as quickly as possible and so you see uh o'reilly doing that like the whole time um one thing i really want to point out and it's it's kind of cool it's something that's very unique about shibata and all these matches that we watched nobody was kicking out of the pk like if you got hit with the pk you're going to sleep and that's it and if you hit shibata with your finisher in most cases he's going to sleep like he was a type of wrestler in most of his matches. He didn't really 
prescribed to the big match wrestling style that you see in, in, in New Japan and other house styles where it's like guys get hit with each other's finishers a million times and then they kick out a bunch of times and they keep building the drama. Like he liked to tell the story through the course of the match and the climax would come and that would just be the end of it. Like the only match I can think of realistically where a lot of finishers were used is the Okada match. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. And in, in this match again, we'll ask about the matches, a lot of great strikes, a lot of great suplexes. Um, you know, you, you had your no selling, um, you know, Kyle O'Reilly kicking out with a PK towards the end there. Like we mentioned, was a, a kind of a pretty big deal there. Uh, and and Shibata here, I think, you know, he really wants to kind of avenge that loss from Feel of Honor. And so he's, I think he's really trying to put um, Kyle away here. And so eventually he gets to sleep the uh, Red Naked Choke locked in towards the end here to get the referee stoppage. So it kind of pays off the story they're telling. It's like, all right, so Kyle put this guy out. For rest stoppage at Feel of Honor, and now Shibata puts Kyle out with a stoppage here in New Japan. Yeah, and it, and it plays off of the Kyle or the uh, the Bobby Fish match as well, because in that match, uh, if I remember correctly, I could be wrong, but I ha- I remember the imagery of Shibata putting Kyle or uh, Bobby Fish in a rear naked choke and finishing him that way as well. So it it kind of plays off of that match in that same way. So it's like back-to-back wins over tag team members via rear naked choke stoppage. And it was kind of cool because he, he had the arm trapped as well. So like, um, you know, Shibata's arm is obviously injured. And I think part of Kyle's like strategy is that he saw his partner get rear naked choked. He's hoping if I can take out this dude's arm or his shoulder, I'm not going to fall to the same fate. And then at the end of the match, when he puts him in the rear naked choke and like Kyle is fighting every way he knows how to, he's chucking, tucking his chin, he's turning it over, he's pulling down on the bad arm, but nothing, it doesn't matter because like he can't get, get over the indomitable will of Shibata. Shibata like has perfect technique and he locks it in. And then when O'Reilly goes to sleep and his mouthpiece falls out and then they end it, I'm like, this is so, <laughs> I, I love this. It's just perfect storytelling. <laughs> And I, I like how um, it's just a little thing, but the way he ended it is obviously to get into that uh, submission at the end where he counters him with the back fist, which we'd already seen earlier with a different match. But that back fist, oh, my God, it's still amazing. <laughs> just the suddenness of it. <laughs> and uh, he uses that to then go into, I think it was a sleeper, then a PK, then back into the sleeper. And it's just like, it's what, with Shibata matches, like, he's hit the PK. He could pin him now. But he doesn't. <laughs> he doesn't want to pin him. <laughs> and uh, it's just that nice little touch towards the end. It's like, no, I'm going to make you submit. Uh, and that's it's, it's, a, it's a perfect way just to wrap up this uh, story where it's uh, just this, this was the right note to kind of go out on where he makes Carol O'Reilly t- uh, tap for everything that the Red Dragon had done to him to this point. Yeah, and I, I just want to shout out Kyle too, because and Josh, you mentioned you know Kyle being one of these kind of hybrid wrestlers and kind of transition to transition. Like there's one spot here where he he has a head crank on, and then he goes into a brain buster, then into a triangle, then into an arm bar, like this this fluid transition between all those moves. It's like this man is incredible. Yeah, that's very 
uh, world of sport centric style wrestling. Um, everyone likes to kind of credit like Zack Sabre. They, they talk about all his transitions. They're like, Oh, it's so world of sport. But like back in the day, like when you wrestled in the UK, if you like, for instance, if you hit someone with a suplex, right. And you dropped them, you could not stand up and then pin the person. Because if you did that, them being on the ground, that was considered a knockdown. They would immediately start a count. And you going for a pin, that's illegal. If you wanted to get a pin, you had to float over when the suplex dropped and then have one fluid motion to a pin. And you saw Kyle Riley do that many times in this match where he would hit an impact move and then float into a submission hold. And I'm like, my God, this dude's like out of 1978, like <laughs> world of sport, like joint promotions. Like it, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my favorite combo, he didn't do it in this match, but he does, or normally he, go, he does a brain buster and immediately float. He'll do the brain buster, a cover, the guy kicks out a two, and then he goes into the arm bar right after the kick out. I love that. There, there, there's one point in this match where he landed one of his like crazy strike combos standing that he always lands, and then he comes off the ropes, and he's going to like throw a big forearm. Shibata just bitch slaps him and his <laughs> <laughs> and his cell job. He's just like on wobbly legs. Like uh, Kyle's the best. Like, yeah, I, I love this match. I was so glad you picked it. And um, if you, ha- if you guys haven't seen this, you need to go out of your way to watch it. Yeah, dude. it's, it's really violent. It's really great. It, again, not very, I don't know. This is less than 20 minutes, probably 18 minutes. Yeah. In that range somewhere. But you know, and uh, this is towards the end of his run. I do think Shibata got better as time went on. Um, when you look at like his, and we're going to get into it here, but you get into his final few months of wrestling and his runs in Red Pro and Ring of Honor and all that sort of stuff. Like he was clearly getting to a higher level than he had been previously. Not to say he wasn't a fantastic world class wrestler, but like things were just coming together for him and like. This is the most complete wrestling match that I think we see him have of the three that we recommended. Yeah, definitely agree with that. And um, yeah, as far as the rating, I, I also went four and a half on this one as well. So all three of these matches, I went four and a half. I loved them equally, and they were just all great in their own way. I would, I would go four and a half on all three of them. We love Shabbat's children all equally. (laughs) 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 So after this matchup, we go to Power Struggle. Well, post-match from this Kyle match, we had Go Shiyazaki come out to face off against Shabbat. Then also... also, I love that crowd (laughs) reaction. Then Evil came out and hit him with the Everything is Evil. So that set up the Never Title match at Power Struggle where Shibata would lose the title to Evil... But then Shibata would get the title right back um, 10 days later at the New Japan Wrestling World event in Singapore. I will still never understand that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone ever, like, I don't think anyone realistically thought that was happening when it happened. It was so bizarre. And then from there, Shibata goes back to Rev Pro. He appeared at the Global Wars UK show, which was a cross-promoted show with Rev Pro and New Japan. And it was a two-night show. On the first night, he defeated Zack Sabre Jr. to win the British Heavyweight Championship. And then he would successfully defend the title the next night against Chris Hero. Which both yeah, of those... Go ahead, Josh. Okay. I'll say both of those are great matches. 
Yeah, as I say, the Chris Hero match is even better than the Zack Sabre match. They're both really good. Like Chris Hero at that point, uh, he was having an absolutely incredible run. Yeah. And yeah, the, t- the two meeting at that point is kind of like they're both at incredible peaks. So the fact that it, it the fact the match took place at all, it's just kind of like it go out of your way to watch this one. It's just two guys at their peaks. Yeah, and it's cool because, you know, nowadays people talk about Naito two belts, but back then we had Shibata two belts. You know, he was the mm-hmm. never open weight champion and he was the champion of the British. <laughs> <laughs> so then we go to 2017, the, the last year of his in-ring career. And it starts off with Wrestle Kingdom 11, where he drops the never open weight title to Hiroki Goto. So kind of reigniting that feud one more time, having one more match there with Goto. Then we go, uh, he goes back to RevPro in January of 20, 21st of that year. He defends the title successfully against Matt Riddle at RevPro High Stakes. But then he would lose the title back to Sabre at uh, New Japan's 45th anniversary show on March 6th. Thanks to an assist from North Suzuki and Suzuki Game. Yeah, he also had a defense that's kind of overlooked in uh, at the new beginning against Will Ospreay. Uh, it's not the greatest match ever, but it's still very, very high level. It's like near, it's like four, four and a quarter. So very, very good. I recommend it. But this, this match was interesting because this is when Zach joined Suzuki Goon. So it was kind of like a big shock at the time because the way people thought of Zach Sabre and him being like this very honorable type of wrestler and everything. And then he joins up with Suzuki Goon and like Suzuki Goon had been like beating his ass for years in Noah, so like no one expected them to like join forces. So yeah, yeah. And this is it's the start of Saber's transition from British swimmer to British dickhead. <laughs> 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 yeah, great stuff there. Uh, so and that'd be the last title he ever held. Yeah, mm. crazy. So from there, we move on to the New Japan Cup, and Chibata defeats Bad Luck Fale into the finals of the 2017 New Japan Cup, and he, with that win, he got the right to challenge Kazuchika Okada for the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, which leads us, and well, actually before that, that, that Chibata Bad Luck Fale match is actually a pretty good uh, match also, if you guys haven't seen that, check that out. Yeah, his his whole run was great. Um, no surprise here, but the Tomohiro Ishii match in the semifinals was like the highlight of his run, um, and that's obviously the last match with him and Ishii, which and it's really great. And so that brings us to his last match, April 9th, Sakura Genesis twenty seventeen. Shibata was defeated by Okada in the title match, and then we all know what happens after that. He Collapsed backstage, is rushed to the hospital, and it's discovered he has a subdural hematoma, which required a emergency sur- emergency surgery, and that is the end of the in-ring career of Shibata. Uh, we know he would go on to become one of the coaches at the LA Dojo. He would make a few on-screen appearances. He came back during the uh, 2017 G1, letting everybody know he's alive. Um and then obviously with the, with the angles last year and bringing in Kenta into the G1 and then Kenta eventually turning on him, um, which we thought we were getting a match up there with the, with the angles they were shooting, but it was just a set-up Goto match. And that's kind of where we left off. And then he's you know right now just training in the LA Dojo and beating up Young Lions. 
I mean, I I, I watched the uh, California Dreaming documentary for the first time, all five episodes today. And um, if you haven't given given that a watch, I'd highly recommend it. Um, I think obviously you could spend a lot of time talking about the Okada match that we have in the past. But the thing I love about it is just what you brought up, Jeremy, that Okada told him three years prior, like, win this tournament and I'll give you a shot. He, like, made him a promise. And then he's like, I held up my end of the bargain. Where are you at? And it is one of those matches where the more I watch it, the more time, the, the more I come to appreciate and love it. And I don't know. I think it is a very heavy contender for greatest New Japan match of all time. I'm not saying it is. I know there's some Kenny Omega fans out there who hate that I'm saying that, but like, <laughs> go go rewatch it and tell me it's not one of the top greatest matches you've ever seen in your life. I mean, it it really is. I think it only gets, um, I guess, overshadowed by, of course, what happens afterwards. But at the time, everybody was just talking about we've just seen an absolute classic. Yeah. Like, before we knew what had happened, it was, um, for me, that's like, uh, there was a little grace period which, uh, I find it, it it's, it's sad that you can't, you can't go back to that grace period where you're just like, oh my God, we've just seen a classic because of what happens. And suddenly the spots in the match have such a different kind of feeling to them. Mm. But again, it is, it is an incredibly well done match. And if you're going to have any match be your last one, one of that higher quality is like, that'd be it's what Undertaker's chasing. he's chasing his okada match (laughs) (laughs) well you know you bring up wwe and it's like you know when you kind of compare the three musketeers against one another it's like you've got tanahashi who's still killing it right now and has had moments and even had a, a late career resurgence winning the g1 and the iwgp title and speaking of which you know shibata seconded him uh, in that uh, G1 win against uh, Kota Ibushi, which was another one of my favorite all-time New Japan matches and a, and a fantastic moment because of the feud those guys had with one another and what that kind of represented. But, you know, you look at Shibata and, like, his career was cut short, unfortunately, and I think a lot of people expected a lot more for him going forward in the future. But then you kind of compare it and contrast it to, like, Nakamura, who, like, before he went to WWE was already in the observer hall of fame based off of it, based off of everything he did. But then you look at his body of work since he went to America. I, I don't know if, if you took him out of the hall of fame and put him back up to vote today, he gets in. I think he doesn't, to be honest with you. And I think it's a, that's an interesting comparison to kind of look at the trajectory where all three of these guys kind of ended up. Um, I'm not saying it's a positive at all that Shabbat is not wrestling, but there is that one solace that like his legacy is kind of intact. Whereas I don't want to say Shinsuke Nakamura's is totally devalued because obviously people who know, know, but then if you don't know and you went and watched him today, like you just don't, you would never know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That, that main roster run really does kind of hurt. And when you, you watch the greatness in New Japan, and even the NXT run was still pretty good, and also it was the same as a match, but then when he gets called up to the main roster, and you know, they have him losing the gender like two, three times, and <laughs> then, they, then they turn him heel, and it's just all downhill from there. It's Yeah, it's a rough look. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this, w- this has been fantastic. Do you guys have any final thoughts? 
Uh, for me, I'm just really glad that Shibata won the poll. Um, I know I kind of missed Shibata's run by the time I started watching New Japan full-time, so it was great to kind of go back, watch some of these great matches, learn more about his career, and, you know, the lead-up to the Okada match, and, yeah, some great stuff. Yeah, like, for me, my like, over time, my absolute favorite became Shinsuke Nakamura in those first kind of months or so, the first years or so. But Shibata was, um, he was the guy I was kind of rooting for to kind of get past uh, all of that issue of respect and fight his way back to uh, being a top guy. Of course, I didn't know anything about the Musketeers when I was watching the arc. It wasn't until years later. And it's, for me, it was kind of like just revisiting the fandom. Like it, that Shibata in the, mid, uh, the middle of the last decade, uh, that's kind of where I did fall in love with him. And him and me just kind of revisiting that. And it's been long enough where I don't remember anything. <laughs> it's just it's like, I was watching the Tanahashi match. I was like, I watched this when it happened and I don't remember anything. <laughs> like, <at all. laughs> but uh, that, that really, really helped uh, just to kind of relive that feeling of like, this is why I became such a big fan of his at the time. Why he skyrocketed but with Honma, why he skyrocketed to the top and just became one of my favorites to watch in New Japan. It's it's a shame, obviously, what happened. Uh, but the his legacy, as you say, his legacy is intact. And going back and watching it, you can just see how fantastic he was. And um, when I was listening to your talk with uh, Cole Fedrick, where he's like, "Oh no, he's he's still got it. <laughs> he's <laughs> yeah. still whoop your ass." <laughs> when um when I think of Shibata, you know. There's a lot of contemporaries that he has, um, but when you go back, I think of anyone from that time period, his matches are maybe the easiest to kind of digest. They're very like palpable, palpable because like uh, they're so visceral, they're so like viewer friendly, they're so exciting. Uh, in in a in a weird way, it kind of reminds me of like Mick Foley. You know, you kind of compare him against all the other great wrestlers of his period. They're all different, but his matches are the ones that are for me are have the most reval like replay value, you know. And that's kind of how it is with Shibata and like a lot of his contemporaries is just. I'm not saying he's the best of them, but it's easier for me to digest and rewatch his stuff. They're short. They're violent. They're the stories are easy to understand and invest into, and he's such a great performer. Um, I miss him. And the one thing I am excited about is what the future holds, whether who knows if, you know, there's some sort of miraculous uh, way for him to wrestle again. I would love that if it could be done safely, but if not the legacy that he's carving out for those LA dojo young lions, I mean, those guys are badasses, like for real, all of them. And uh, I can't wait to see what's produced over there. And, you know, I'm excited for the future. Yes. Well, we do have uh, a few questions here, some revolving around Shibata and then just some kind of random New Japan questions. Uh, So first from uh, Highest Fly Flow in the Discord, he said, where did Shibata get his silent badass persona from? From the stuff I've seen before he left, he wasn't like the Shibata of 2017. Um, Like like the mid-2000s? I mean, if if you want my honest opinion, I think he's always been the same guy. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that again we mentioned earlier in the show it's hard to follow some of the dark age stuff so before his exit i couldn't say with any complete certainty 
But I mean, from what I understand, Shabbat has always kind of been stoic. He's always kind of been a man of few words and a man who is high octane action and intensity in the ring. And I think he's always kind of been that guy, even when he left the company, um, you know, like his catchphrase is that's all. <laughs> and that's, and that's always been his catchphrase. Like he's always been the wrestler. Like he's always been, that's who he is. Yeah. And he also asks, what team ranks higher Shibata and Kenta or Shibata and Goto? I've, I've got an attachment to Shibata Goto. Um, yeah, I think it depends on your, your taste. I mean, I think the better matches were had by Shibata and Kenta. Um, but they didn't really like, and that was like a more high, like notoriety sort of thing. It was a big deal. It was all over the press and Noah was the big company and there was some really big dream matches afforded to them at the time. But you know, in modern times, I mean, Shibata and Goto is a really formidable tag team. I mean, I, I guess personally I'd say Shibata Kenta, but I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I haven't seen any um, of Shibata and Kenta teaming together, so I can't fully answer. So uh, I've seen Shibata and Goto, so that would be the one I would have to kind of lead on until I see some Shibata and Kenta. Then a um, question here from Murray Bowen says, if, if Shibata had never been forced to retire, where do you think his position in the card have been? Would you would he still have been around the Never title or maybe a part in the IC or US scene or even the tag team title scene? Nice, Murray. You gave us a yes this question <laughs> and then provided every single option possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, well, yeah, one of those. <laughs> I think I think I think one of those options is definitely yeah. a possibility. Yeah, it's like it's like that. <laughs> that is what he's looking for, right? <laughs> it's like that episode of The Office where uh, Dwight is stocking up for the uh, apocalypse, and Jim's like, "Could it be in one month, two months, three months?" And he's like. 144 months and every single time Dwight's like I could see that happening it's a very <laughs> real possibility <laughs> well, oh come on is this one of the one of the sitcoms where uh, the guy's just like oh he, he lost his arm oh how how high was the cut what here here and then the guy just goes hey, it was his other arm oh <laughs> <laughs> Why do but, we? Why uh, do we? Why do we have to shit on Murray's questions every time he asks? <laughs> <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, I don't really know where Shibata would have been, but it felt like in 2017, it felt like they were getting ready to put him in the upper mid card, like basically similar to Suzuki, not in quite in the top four, but right outside of it, and I don't know that. I mean, who knows if things would have played out differently that he couldn't have potentially gotten to that top spot. I, I'm not I, I'm not convinced he couldn't have. I mean, Abushi's kind of there now. Who says Abushi gets there if if Shibata's still around, honestly? Right. Because yeah, that match with Okada made him. like He could have stayed around that main event scene, been intercontinental champion, maybe at minimum. Uh, who's, to, who's to say that it's not Shibata winning the title from Omega at Wrestle Kingdom and winning the G1 that year and not Tanahashi. Mm. Mm, yeah. I think that that's a real possibility had he still been around. I don't know, though. Yeah, we'll, we'll never know. 
Next question from Sizable Burger Bun. Which members of the current NJPW roster could beat Shibata in a shoot fight? Oh, man. Probably a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, dude, the dude had a subdermal hematoma, bro. Like, <laughs> he had brain surgery. Like, probably a lot of people that could beat him in a shoot fight right now. <laughs> and that's ignoring his fight record anyway. <laughs> right yeah <laughs> um but i don't I'll know say, who who can shoot in the company i'll say tai chi people underestimate tai chi <laughs> <laughs> dangerous tea <laughs> um i don't what about suzuki i don't know suzuki's pretty old suzuki's pretty old i mean he probably could but like the thing is suzuki never was a good striker even in like his prime, he, he but he's fantastic grappling. Uh, I mean, yeah, Suzuki could probably beat him still. Suzuki's like incredible. Can I say Jeff Cobb because he's an Olympian still in <laughs> decent Bro, shape? <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, uh, and I I don't mean to like question his credentials, but when you go to Guam to get your qualifications. <laughs> <laughs> It's not the same as qualifying for the U.S. Olympic team. It's not. I'm sorry. It's just not the same. <laughs> and does beating the beating the crap out in a shoot fight also equate to being able to do good wrestling <laughs> maneuvers? I, but but I wouldn't be surprised if Jeff Cobb could could win a fight with him. I mean that that makes sense to me. I I you know I never think about who can shoot in the company anymore. Like, is there anyone who's like like? I mean, think about it. Who is there? Yeah, there's not not really a bunch of like legit shooters. Yeah. I don't know. I'll tell you one person who probably wouldn't: Zach Saber. <laughs> <laughs> With his Michael Phelps medal winning. <laughs> uh, we got. We can move on though. Yeah. So uh, I'll be here for I think I think Suzuki's probably the best answer. Probably. So next question from Reddit user Viking Pain. Um, does these questions involve Shibata, but let's pretend he never had a career-ending injury. Would he have eventually created his own faction, joined an existing one, or stayed solo? Mm-hmm. Maybe solo until Kenta comes in. And if he's I, been wrestling the entire time, you could do something with that. Yeah. I don't know. This This is a fantasy booking situation, so it's really too hard for me to say. I mean... Who knows? I mean, he never was really in a faction, and I think eventually he might have needed to go that route. Um, he could still just be in Sekigun. I really don't know. Yeah, just just based on where he was at, at in that Okada match, I feel like he might have stayed in a, in a solo kind of run, kind of been the lone wolf kind of. And like you mentioned, Imp, yeah, when Kenta comes in, that you, you do something there, you could have them team up, and then maybe you know the legit turn he turns on turns on him, joins Bullet Club, and then you get the, the blow-off of a Kenta-Shibata matchup there. Uh, his next question says... What I, he- I'm looking I'm looking at the roster just as a kind of go-back. <laughs> I'll tell you two people who I think could probably beat his ass. I think Kota Ibushi could probably beat his ass. Mm. <laughs> um, I don't know how good Kota Ibushi's grappling is, but, I mean, his, his real-world striking is like he was a K-1 fighter uh, or K-2, but still... And then um, Toha Nari probably beat his ass. Mm. With all that uh, Muay Thai. 
Bro, Tohanari, from what I understand, is like for real, for real. <laughs> People don't realize it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, oh, there was the um, the Cultaholic channel when they went over to uh, Wrestle Kingdom, and that, like, they were hanging out with uh, Tamatonga was doing uh, the good guy Tamatonga at that point, and he was being really friendly to all the YouTubers, and obviously, they're kind of like. I know you. Why are you being nice? <laughs> but um, so they ended up drinking, and Toa Hanai was there, and they got them doing the hacker. And apparently, when uh, Jack from Called the Holic was, he didn't know the hacker <laughs> like at all. And Toa Hanare just in his face was like, "You best give it your all." <laughs> I don't give a shit if you don't know it. You are doing this hacker. He's <laughs> just like, "All right, I'll do it." <laughs> Uh, so this next question, would Chibata have been a part of the main event Big Four just on the outside? I think we kind of answered that already. Um, I think so. I think he'd be like uh, right outside the top guys at, at the minimum. Yeah. If anything, the kind of meta narrative of the next three Musketeers might have had a bit of a stronger feeling with he just kind of like cement Chibata as one of those new Musketeers and then use that to build up the next lot. Yeah. And yeah, so would he have won the IWGP heavyweight title? That's a hard question because obviously not everybody wins that belt. Um there I I think it's more likely he would not have, but I don't think it's that heavy. I would go like 60-40. Like 60% he doesn't win it, but there's a pretty wide margin, like 40% he could have potentially won it. Or even if he was still wrestling, maybe win it in the future. I don't know. I mean yeah, because in the middle of that uh, legendary Okada vein, so it's really difficult to think. Well, would anyone have beaten him? Yeah, and that and that's hindsight. Like we know that now, but we didn't know it at the time, and it makes sense. And then there's the Kenny Omega reign, and those two. I can't see those not happening. I can't see the Naito reign not happening. The one I can see not happening is definitely the Tanahashi one. Mm. And, may, and maybe the Jay White one probably still would have happened, but I think Jay White doesn't probably get that title shot or that title reign without uh, Kenny Omega leaving as well. Right. So there's a lot of moving pieces. It's hard to say. But, I mean, I don't know. In 2017, it felt like he was one of the next guys for sure. So his next question, what matches would you have loved to see a healthy and prime Katsuyori Shibata have the current NJPW roster. And just for fun, give him a rating on the Bret Hart wrestler scale. Okay. Uh, easy. Shingo. Yes. Oh, that was my first choice <laughs> <trust> as well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shingo's going to be the answer for everybody who ever asks us about like yeah. a, a fantasy match that hasn't happened because he wasn't in the company all those years. <laughs> yeah. 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 A never title match with Shingo and Shibata would be incredible. Um, I mean, I would love to see him and Zack Sabre in a New Japan ring. We got it in Red Pro a few times, and the one the one we got was disappointing due to the the bullshit, and it it didn't live up to the to the hype. Um, also, heavyweight Will Osprey. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be all great. Um, also, we we only got the one Kota Ibushi match back in 2015 and it was it was like 15 minute banger and like to see them have a proper match would be incredible yeah i'm not gonna argue against anybody against kota Ibushi, so yeah that sounds great hell 
Bring Kenny back. Let them run it. <laughs> <laughs> Open the forbidden door. Open the forbidden door. <laughs> uh, and then now, Bret Hart wrestler scale. So, um, look, Mike, work it factor. As far as look, where, what would you guys rate him? Eight and a half. Because he is the wrestler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think eight and a half is a solid look for him. For solid for look. Uh, so, look, Mike. Mike's good. He didn't talk much, so. Yeah, but when he yeah, did, but, but when he does, it's always impactful. It's always meaningful. It's yeah. not. I mean, I don't know. Seven, seven, seven and a half. Yeah, seven and a half or seven. Yeah, it up. Of, they have weight, even though he doesn't use them much. <laughs> seven and a half. That's all. All right. So look, might work. Ten. Uh, his, work, his work is really high. I, yeah. I'd go like, I don't know if I go ten, maybe nine and a half. Nine and a half. Okay. Yeah, it's hard. And then uh, it factor. Who ten? Yeah. So yeah, so pretty high score there. No one, no one added up because we're all bad at math. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's four in the morning. I'm not doing any math. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So if if anybody wants to add it up on the air, you can, you guys can do that and see. Yeah, it's it's a really high score. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Are you doing the math, young boy? No, I was waiting for you to ask the next question. I'm not doing the math. I'm not, I'm not doing it. Uh, he says, um, lastly, not an NJPW topic, but producers of Dark Side of the Ring have said that they get a season three. They would like to go international like Japan. If they could, what dark, sad, shady wrestling stories from Japan would you like to see them cover? Then mine would be Masawa's death. We had this question like through two or three weeks ago, and I named like six or seven... Japanese scandals. Yeah. I think, yeah, somebody else, also somebody differently asked. But yeah, we did talk about a few, you did talk about a few uh, Japan scandals. So, yeah, I, think I mean, there's. Yeah, cool. So I remember uh, Josh answering it. It's this, the, the easy answer is, well, there's lots of Yakuza stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a bunch of Yakuza stories. <laughs> and there's a bunch of, you know, wrestlers' deaths, bad. Uh, you know, dojo stories, people getting killed, people getting, you know, mishandled, mistreated, uh, stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of stories. And then, yeah, deaths in the ring and, you know, injuries. Those are real things that have happened. So, yeah. Uh, next question from Reddit user Guilty Watts. It says, if there is a G1, hopefully, what do the blocks look like given that a lot of the foreign talent won't be able to make it to Japan? Well, first off, we don't know that a lot of talent won't be able to make it necessarily because we don't know what the travel restrictions will look like towards the end of the year. Hypothetically, if talent were able to get there, they'd still have to quarantine most likely for a few weeks. So that's kind of a question there. Um, I mean, I think New Japan has enough domestic talent to if they really want to just do their 10-10 block, they could do it and give a lot of new guys opportunities that they don't normally get. Right. Yeah, yeah, like last year where we saw uh, Shingo and Os- Will Ospreay kind of get in as juniors. This can repeat that. Have a bit, a few more juniors who wouldn't normally get a shot. And you can give um, Kojima his last G1 run. Get him in there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, heck, give Hama a run. Whatever. Like, we, got some, <laughs> yeah. we got some slots to fill up. <laughs> just, just don't put him on commentary. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then last question here from Reddit user just a little bear zero one. 
Uh, says, I know the concept of face and heel is sometimes more nebulous in New Japan, but in general, were legend and rise heel or face stables, or did it depend on who they were against? I don't really know, to be honest with you, but I, I, I think I've always heard that they were heels, but I, I really don't know. Yeah, Rise especially, I think I've heard more that they were heels, but again, it's heard, not very experienced. Yeah, man, I, I have no clue. Great question. Keep them rolling in the future. We'll give you the great answers we give. <laughs> especially Murray. <laughs> And All right, let's wrap it up uh, with the news. Yeah, so just two um, big news items here. So on uh, 527, due to losses from the pandemic, Bushi Road announced that the directors of Bushi Road and their group companies would have a pay cut from 15% to 95%, depending on the person for the five-month period covering, covering May through September, and then return to regular compensation. Every company in the group will have to cut Expenses, notably in advertising promotions and through all facets, employees and sal- employee salaries and bonuses will also be cut. Uh, New Japan Pro Wrestling will start running live events as soon as they're able to allow fans to attend shows. If not, do empty arena shows first. Um, and this, this came from the the Observer, and you know you just kind of see the, the differences. in, you know, Bushi Road, their their employees are taking pay cuts, and nobody's getting fired. And other promotions, they're firing a bunch of people. <laughs> so. I'm- I mean, it, it's pretty simple. If you are someone who is well off and wealthy, and you're fortunate enough to be in a position like that, maybe you'd taken the ninety-five percent pay cut and working for free for a while to ensure the prosperity of your company, the workers, and the product makes sense. At least to me, logically, it does. You know, and I'm not—we're not here to talk politics, but I mean. It's not like this is a forever thing. This is a temporary measure to keep things afloat. So, yeah. And it's like in Japan as well, it's more of a societal thing for the people at the top to voluntarily take the hit. Like, I think Nintendo did it as well when the Wii U underperformed. The top top exec, whatever his name was, uh, he took an absolutely massive pay cut so none of the workers had to lose their jobs over his directive. So it's like completely different like a societal, cultural kind of, I guess, respect kind of levels for certain things. Yeah, but yeah, definitely great to see that they decided to make the pay cuts instead of releasing wrestlers. And then um, Sports Illustrated, Hiroshi Tanahashi spoke to Sports Illustrated regarding the current situation and his thoughts. Tanahashi has expressed the viewpoint that pro wrestling should be the last sport to return to action as opposed to rush to be one of the first. He says, the wrestling business is an extremely difficult situation. After all, we are athletes in a contact sport and we perform in front of packed crowds. It's a recipe for disaster right now. It's hard to say when exactly we'll have matches again, but I hope in the meantime, wrestlers look look after themselves, stay in top shape and keep fans hungry to see us when we come back. He noted, unlike other sports, pro wrestling companies act independently. In Japan, there are, are government governing associations for most of the major sports, even like boxing, sumo, and judo. There isn't a governing body for Japanese pro wrestling. As much as we can't necessarily enforce cancellations, that's been the responsibility of each company. But to run events in the middle of a pandemic presents the wrong image of professional wrestling to society and would deal a black eye to the industry that might still remain even after the pandemic ends. And then Vikampain asks us any thoughts on these comments from Tanahashi about wrestling during the pandemic, sending the wrong message and could end up being a black eye on the Japanese wrestling industry. I don't know. 
It kind of sounds like Hirsch Tanahashi needs to shut the fuck up. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, listen. Okay. Uh, here's the thing. It's like there definitely, definitely like needs to be safety and precautions, things of that nature. But like, bro, most of these companies like are on the brink of going under. So what are you talking about? Like, you know, they're doing like GoFundMe pages and shit, and he's talking about it. This is a black eye on on the wrestling industry. There's not going to be a wrestling industry. What are you talking about? Like, these companies are going to go out of business, and it's not like they're all running shows with a bunch of fans in attendance. You know what I mean? Like, I think he just doesn't like that they're running empty arena shows because it looks low rent. That's my take on it. Am I wrong on that? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, I think at one point he is kind of concerned about, you know, wrestler and fan safety and, and, uh, you know, most people have applauded new Japan for not running any kind of shows during this time. And so, I don't know, maybe he just kind of wants things to be safe as possible, but part of that too. Here, yeah. Here, here's the thing. There are worse places you could be running empty arena shows than Japan. And if you look at the cases that they've had and the way that their health administration has handled things. Uh, and I'm not like an advocate for this, you know, I talked very differently about this whole situation weeks ago, but I think everything is very fluid, and I think we need to be able to adjust based on the information we have. And look at what, like, all these other companies have run empty arena shows, and it's been a, you know, very, very low or literally none. There's been like one, two cases that have ever come out, and they weren't from major wrestling promotions. Like, I don't know. Like, I get the concern but i don't know it, it, like it's, it sounds like maybe you shouldn't be talking about all the other wrestling companies just talk about what new japan's doing like new japan's handling it great like they're they're able to they're in, a, in an ideal world nobody would run and it's and that's perfect but it's not an ideal world and not every company can not run realistically or they're gonna go out of business so because haven't any of the companies there's been like MTV and shows have been happening? All of them. All Every of them. single, all of them in, in Japan. Big Japan, mm. DDT, Noah, Dragon All Gate. Japan, Dragon mm. Gate. They've all done it. Noah, New Japan's the only one that hasn't, even most of the Joshi companies. And it's all because they're going to go out of business if they don't run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, like, it's easy to say this. It's easy to say you guys shouldn't be doing it when you're in a position where you are able to not do it. Mm. Right. I think that's the difference. Like New Japan have the ability. And I think one of the things from his uh, full quote, which I'm not sure was there, um, was just that he was saying that the other sports industries in Japan are kind of safe where they've got officiating bodies over the top of them that can overlook all of the different teams, all the different leagues, and keep everybody kind of in check and, and oversight them. Wrestling doesn't have that. It's up to each individual promotion by themselves to decide what to do or to look after their own well-being. And that means that the kind of foundation that's there for the other sports in Japan doesn't exist for wrestling. Um, but then after saying that, obviously, he comes to the same conclusion of, well, I, I feel like wrestling should be the last thing to return. That, I think oh, that's a terrible... Yeah. I, and I've said this since he said it. There's no way wrestling should be the last thing to return. Wrestling should come back when it is a smart and safe and viable choice based on the science and the recommendations. Why? Why would you recommend that new that wrestling be the last thing to come back? Like, okay, y'all, y'all, y'all are clear to go. 
everybody, uh, you guys can run shows now. It's safe. Wrestling goes, no, nah, we're going to hold back. I want to make sure that uh, judo and, and baseball and you know soccer and rugby and all you guys are good to go. And make sure the concerts, everyone come back. And then once y'all are done, let us know. We'll, we'll go last. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> That's stupid. He just doesn't want to do the sad moment of doing his air guitar in the middle of the ring and then go to throw it and then there's no one there. Yes. Nobody throw I mean, it back be- to him. When I say he needs to shut the fuck up, I'm just being facetious. But, like, in all seriousness, um, you know, I think that New Japan has handled the situation as best they possibly could, and it's been really great. And you know what? Many of those companies, when they ran the empty arena shows before, it probably wasn't safe. It probably wasn't a smart idea. But at this point, it turns out that their gamble wasn't as bad as we thought it was. So I'm not, like, applauding those companies, but I'm saying at this point... I don't. When did he make those comments? Because if he made it like a few weeks ago, I think that's like ill-timed. Like, because I'm not saying things aren't bad still, and that this isn't something to be taken seriously still. But it's also like you have to be reasonable in, in your understanding and take on it. And like saying no one else should run, and that that's a black eye, and that wrestling should be the last thing to come back. That's not. I don't know. That's not reasonable. That's like ridiculous sounding to me. Well, if I'm right, they're the same comments that he gave when he was speaking to the government. Yeah, right, and, yeah. yeah. But that yeah. was that was like what a month or so ago. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was a long time ago. And back then, I remember that like, I agreed with him at that point. Then, because of course, at that point, there was lots of anger of the American companies still putting this out when we didn't know whether it was safe or not to do so. Now we know a lot more. We know we don't know a lot more. And I think there was things to criticize about what they did when they did it and how they did it, but there's a lot of things to applaud as well. You know, what I mean, like, and I don't know all the details, but from what I understand, like in, in America, many of the the companies are running multiple tests, multiple checks, multiple precautions. You know, what I mean, like, I mean, everyone but WWE, essentially, <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that, well, there are some things WWE has done good and some things they haven't done right. Like, I don't think they're doing the tests correctly, but they're not keep, you know, for a long time, they weren't keeping everybody in the building together. Like, you'd only come in when it was your match and then you'd leave immediately. They were disinfecting in between stuff. Like, so I don't know. Like, it, and at the end of the day, the reason these companies were still running is because they were obligated to, because if they didn't, then. They, aside from WWE, and actually even WWE, all of them, they had to run for the viability of their companies. Otherwise, they might not be a company. Exactly. They had to. Like, they didn't have, you know, the choice. And so every situation is unique. And anyone who wants to pretend like the situations weren't unique and that, they, that they're that they not all fluid and different uh, is kind of kidding themselves. I think the fluid things, the kind of important thing with Tanahashi's reiteration of the comments where like just if if you, if you said that within this past week or so that's a little bit more well that kind of need possibly needed reassessment because so much has changed the entire and it's, it changes so quickly as well like we're talking like from one day to the next never mind weeks or months i i think again you haven't heard anything from this podcast other than us praising new japan for how they've handled it mm. and we're going to remain to staying the same and I'm not saying that anything about what they've done is disingenuous at all, but I question 
had they been put in the same position as AEW or WWE, that they wouldn't have gone ahead and done the same thing. Because if the survival of the company depends on a TV deal that you have to fulfill a contractual obligation to, do you think New Japan really wouldn't be running all these months? If they were going to go under, for sure, do you think Harold Mai, with you know, with them being publicly traded and having shareholders and everything, like you think he's not going to find a way to run shows? Like They probably would have. They're just fortunate to be in a position where they don't have a TV deal like that. They're not, their, their business isn't set up um, and isn't contingent on TV deals. So they were fortunate enough to not have to do that. But I question whether they, and I don't know the answer to that. Maybe, maybe, maybe they do let the company go out of business in the name of safety, but I doubt it. Mm. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think anyone does that. No one does that. So I think New Japan are New Japan. They can they, they can do what Tanahashi's talking about, but say all of wrestling. I think that's the only the main I've got. Yeah, not every big, company can, but big, New big Japan. Japan big big do Japan's it. doing freaking GoFundMe pages. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's no way that these companies could do what New what New Japan's doing. It's just not realistic. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys and. Obviously, yeah, your Big Japan, your your Noahs, your your All Japan, your Dragon Gates, DDT, Stardom, you know, all those promotions that they got they got to run when they get to go ahead to run. So, God, and who knows when these companies even if if when they can run if they can even turn a profit. Like I, I guarantee you, some of these companies are going out of business. Well, Japan's pretty health conscious, like especially as a community. Um, uh, I am going from a port from friends who live there. Where like whenever there's a cold or anything, there's quite a big kind of I won't say freak out, but they like to keep on top of it, make sure you're going out with your mask, keeping safe. Like obviously to us, like the UK is pretty similar to America, where that doesn't happen. If it, well, yeah. Well, like some is of these it, companies, if you just think about it, like they already aren't pulling the strongest numbers in some cases, and then you know with the health scare that's happened, who knows if people even want to come back out, and then when they can come back out, they're going to be running at not full capacity. We're talking like 25% capacity or something. Will they even be able to turn a profit when everything's said and done after they've paid the talent, after the travel expenses, booking it? Like, I don't know how these companies are going to make money going forward. I'm concerned about new Japan as well. When they start to run shows, like when will they, their, their, their earning reports are not going to be good this year. And, and I mean that, and that's besides the point. But I'm just wondering, like, if if it's not going to be good for them, how are small companies going to be when this is all said and done? Like, there there will be comp- there's going to be casualties for sure. Yeah, and we're we've already seen some um, companies go out of business. So yeah, yeah. So hopefully, somehow, some way, the the small guys find a way to keep on pushing through, and you know, new hopefully, new Japan will be back. Hopefully, maybe next month with uh, some empty arena stuff. And uh, nice. So that's gonna wrap things up for the news. Imp, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, staying up late <laughs> for us here um, in the U.S. <laughs> so go ahead and tell listeners uh, where they can find you online. Plug your podcast, your your columns, your blogs, all the stuff that you're doing in the wrestling media world. 
the uh, birds are twer- tweeting at me through the window, so I'll start with Twitter. <laughs> uh, <you can laughs> follow me on Twitter at the damn impercat. That's damn as in damn. I need to find a new way of doing that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it works for Farouk. <laughs> well, works for Farouk. But sh- sh- I shouldn't be allowed to. <laughs> 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 um, and you can read my columns whenever I post them on uh, Lords of Pain or the rebranded as WrestlingHeadlines.com. But you type in lots of penny comes up anyway, so I can plug it. It's fine. It redirects. Um, I am also live every Thursday on Lots of Pain Radio, covering whatever I talk about in the week. Most often, like little insider, most often come my show on a Thursday. I have got no idea what I'm going to talk about because I've not watched any wrestling. Then I'm forced myself to Photoshop an image, and that's when I come up with the idea. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so yeah, yeah it was like literally like last minute i come up with ideas um but i'm live every thursday at 7 est midnight gmt and uh, i'll talk about something i can't tell you what i'm going to talk about this thursday because of what i've just said <laughs> i've got no idea until the day uh i'm also i do uh lots of pain video aftershock as well where we're live after all the pay-per-views be it new japan aew wwe i'll be live after all of them not decided whether I'm going to be live after TakeOver yet for NXT because I like my sleep. I'm still recovering from double or nothing. <laughs> like, I'm not. And then it's bloody backlash with the greatest match in the world on <laughs> the week afterwards. <laughs> so, it's the greatest match in history. Greatest, greatest match we will have ever seen in our lives. And it won't end in five seconds after an RKO and a bring one. No, it's going to be fine. <laughs> it's going to be the greatest match you've ever seen. Hugh Jackman will walk down and they will sing the song to their faces about how it's the greatest match in history. And uh, that's enough shitting on WWE. <laughs> so we live afterwards. I can shit on them then. <laughs> I can hold it in. Uh, I'll be live afterwards then. Hopefully there's been some... New Japan, there'll be some New Japan kind of news, maybe, even if it is uh, like G1 Climax announcements that it'll be running, but in like a closed arena kind of situation or something. Um, I thought, I've thought when I've been looking at it that the New Japan style could translate to the MTV is a lot better than like WWE's because WWE's is very sports entertaining. You, you do a move, you go ta da, and pose with the audience, <laughs> yeah. And com- Compared to New Japan, where it's so sports-based, where the competition is mostly what's important, and AEW, which is like in between the two, has done really well. So I kind of feel like New Japan, it might translate, apart from Tanahashi's air guitar, as I brought up earlier. (laughs) (laughs) That would just be weird, and I'm really looking forward to when he has to do that. (laughs) He's just close. Um, But yeah, aside from that, uh, pleasure to come on. Really enjoyed talking about New Japan, it was a it was a pleasure just watching New Japan again. <laughs> just, to, <laughs> just to jump back into that world and remind myself how much I love it. Everything from the uh, tw- the mental 20 counts to the uh, like stiff as hell Shibata wrestling. Uh, it was an, an awesome trip back through time. So thank you for having me on. No problem, man. One of our favorite guests, and we'll definitely have you back on sometime in the future. And that's going to wrap things up for this week. So next week, we'll be back with Sir Sam from LOP. And the the poll theme is Best IC Champion. So go out and get your vote. The vote the poll will be up on our Twitter account, at KI Strongstyle, at 12 Eastern Time on Tuesday, June 2nd. So go to the Twitter account, get your voices heard, and vote for which Best IC Champion you want us to talk about uh, next week. 
So if you enjoy- Goto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuplex.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong Style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, we're at KI Strong Style. I'm at Jeremy L. Donovan. This shit, you can also follow us at Social Suplex on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash social suplex. Also find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash wrestling squared circle. On Instagram, we're at social suplex. On Reddit, on the poor black guy, Josh is keeping it strong style. You can email me, Jeremy, at social suplex.com. Check out our Discord server, Social Suplex. And check out all the other shows on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We have One Nation Radio. Hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. We have Grown Men Watch This Shit, hosted by Jeremy Tate and Chris Bryan. Get in the Ring with Danny and Beast Mike. And All Things Elite with Floyd Johnson Jr., uh, Amy O., Tiffany, and his new co-host Austin. So check that out. And hopefully soon we'll have Ricky and Clyde Wrestling Show back for you guys as well. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and review. And we will catch you next week on Keeping a Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Ejo, that's all. Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.